Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, the missing member of the Beats, Dagan Moriarty. <laughs> Very nice. A Doug reference to start out. Yeah, a Doug reference, Hi, of guys. Course. Oh, I, I love Hi, guys. Oh, to get a little musical, I was going to say. Oh. You idiot. You're, you're crooning and now you're going right <laughs> Now in. going right into Ren so Stimpy. A non sequiturs here to start out this episode it's of Knockback. A, you know, it's a montage. It's a, what do you call it? It's an, it's an anthology. It is. It is an anthology episode of Knockback. Knockback, of course, for the uninitiated is our retro and nostalgia theme podcast we do every week. You can support it over on patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand if you really like it and want to get the show a week early ad free every episode. Of course, you can also submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas over on Patreon since we let you know every topic before we record it. And then you let us know your thoughts. Dagan, how how does today find you? Today finds me well, my friend. It's great to be here with you in Southern California. Here we are. We just got back from a little excursion to In-N-Out Burger. A sojourn, as it were. Yeah, a sojourn. With some c- pretty colorful Uber drivers there and back. Yes, we yes. had a couple of couple of characters yeah. going there, and especially the guy back. Yeah, the b- guy back was more colorful. The guy there a little more dangerous. Yeah, he was let's da- say he was dangerous. He was a little bit more dangerous. But yeah, we had a ride. You know, Santa Monica is a little bit shishi with its like not allowing. Or it just doesn't have like certain restaurants. There's no five guys, no in and outs, right. nothing around here. Right. There are McDonald's, so you would assume that I guess they're not that crazy, but it's just annoying. So anyway, we had to go to the Marina Del Rey. Yeah. In an Uber. A little to go bit to of a distance away. That wasn't a big deal. Now the guy there, Kyle, I didn't yeah. get to talk to you about this. The guy going there, funny guy, he was trying to use magic tricks to turn the light green, right? He yes. was saying open sesame to turn the light green. What I neglected to tell him was that my kids do the same trick. I didn't oh. want to make him feel bad. Oh, interesting. They yeah, tried you don't want to him, do yep. like a magic wand type thing. He was doing a little separate, a little bit of a different take on it, but it's a very similar thing. Right. I feel like saying that's what my eight-year-old does. Right. You don't want to emasculate I didn't say him. That. You don't want to emasculate the man. No. Right. You don't want to make him feel like a because fool. he might give you a bad rating. Right. You don't want that. I have no. an immaculate Uber rating. Yes. You're very polite to the Uber drivers. I like to be very polite to the Uber drivers. You are. You know, just you, first of all, it's just nice to be polite to people. I think. Of course. But also, you know, this is a crowd-sourced kind of thing going on here. And, Absolutely. you know, it's an honest reflection. I Maybe not a completely honest. I'm sure people manipulate it or can manipulate it. But it's a somewhat honest reflection of, like, who you are. Lola, what do you... Lola's what? got her monkey out. Uh. She's... We've been trying to let Lola stay in the room with us as we record. Lola yeah. is my Boston Terrier, for people that don't know. My girlfriend's really. And, uh, you know, she's my adopted daughter, basically. And so she's been really good. But actually, she just jumped back on the bed with the monkey. And it looks like she's just going to oh, sit there. So that that's, monkey. I thought a monkey was slang for something. She's got her monkey out. 
No, no, oh, no. It's no, an actual no, stuffed goodness, monkey. Oh, no, good lord! No. You don't have your actual monkey out. No, That's good. Dagan and I were waiting for an Uber back outside of a store called the Box Store, <laughs> which was a literal box store. But we had brought up the idea that you could really, if you wanted to be gross. Oh boy! If you wanted to be really disgusting, you can name a strip club the Box Store. It's pretty disgusting. Was it just called the box? The bo- No, I think it was called the box store, <laughs> okay. which is way funnier than the that box. That is actually Because the box, there's definitely strip club is called the box. I would imagine. I would so. assume, right? Very classy. But the box the store. joints. The box store. That's good stuff. <laughs> oh you know, if I owned a strip club, I would absolutely name it that. Let's be serious. It's a good, it's a good name. There's nothing to be ashamed of with that. <laughs> Not at all. Dagan. Today's topic is Nicktoons, 90s Nicktoons 90s specifically. 90s Nicktoons. This was voted on by our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Collins last stand. We thank you for that. Fan topic. Before we get into this topic, though, and I, we have to figure out how we want to cover this topic for two different reasons. Number okay. one is because one of the shows we're obviously going to talk about, we've already done a full episode about. Sure. So, like, how are we going to talk? Like, we have to figure, we have to talk our way through this. We'll talk about its place in the Pantheon. But the other thing we have to talk about is how deep we want to get into any of these shows. Sure. Since I think some of them... I would definitely want to do a topic about maybe in the future. Like I, yeah. I really like Doug and I really like Rocco, for instance. And yes. th- both those shows would be really good to do full episodes on. I, I'm less fond of like pretty much all the other ones. Okay. So those are your favorites, specifically right. your favorite. Well, we could go as deep or as shallow as you want. I know, you know, I, this is, this is sort of my wheelhouse. So whatever you want to do, it's all there for the taking. Maybe we go, you like to go uh, often like to let the listener write ins questions, comments, and concerns. You often like to let that be your guide. We could go that way. Right. That's often my North Star, isn't it? I like it. And maybe we will go there. But before we... We'll, we'll figure it out. Let's feel okay. it out. But of course, we need to start with one of our opening segments here. Now, for the uninitiated as well, if you need more explanation and more exposition... Please. Then I'll give... Now Lola's got the now, reindeer out. What? Now you have your reindeer toy. It's now even Christmas. Now Grandma Moriarty got you that reindeer toy. And it's a, it's a great reindeer toy. Let me see it. It's got like these ro- it's Rudolph. It's it, it yeah. It's it's Rudolph. Well, is it though? Because he has a brown. No, does he have a, red, a nose? red nose? Oh, okay, yeah. there it is. I thought that was. Oh, that was his ear. So, I oh, I don't know that we can allow it. this to continue. She's or, shaking it. It's a little noisy. You're getting. You're feeling your O's a little bit too much. Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah, Lola. I think you got to go. <laughs> I think you got. I'm sorry. I think you got to go. Bye, Loli. It's too bad because you're in good spirits. She is in good spirits. She's yeah, feeling spirits. good. She likes this topic, I think, really, I, is what sorry. it is. I'm sorry. You're not being bad, Lola. You're playing, but it's just it's not good for podcasting. Lola, a fan of pork chop, I believe. Pork chop being Doug Funny's dog. What other dogs are in this batch? Well, pork chop is certainly... Oh, Ren right, as well. Yeah, I was going to say Ren's All right. Well, Lola's locked in my bedroom now. Sorry. It's Okay. It's more apologizing to her. She can't really hear it, or, nor does she understand English. I'm not really so concerned about you. Sorry, Lola. To be perfectly honest. But no. Now, David, so all. usually with the opening segments, mm-hmm. you like to be the maestro of those. Or are you typically just taking that mantle? And I feel bad about that. And I felt bad about that because you don't never, get to play. never feel bad about it, but I appreciate that. You now don't get, get to play. No. So now usually. I'm going to let you play. We're doing a new segment this wave called It's About Time. I will present Dagan with 10 different things, nouns, let's say. Okay. Pretty much, right? I think. Mm, are the they all nouns? For the most part, I think. It's no, been. they're not. But they're, but what they else? are, but for the most part. Yeah, for the most part. And Dagan just tells me what year this thing, whatever, came out, was published, An whatever event. the case might be. 
Exactly. Whatever. And then we go over the dates and see how he did. And I give him a reprieve on the answer he got, like the worst answer before I let him know what they were. And so I, I didn't even think of the cheating using Google. I have my phone here. You do. I'm not going to, though. I mean, it would be Am somewhat I? obvious if you were doing that because you would just be typing. Maybe or I'm just texting somebody. That would be kind of rude, show. right? That would be, be really rude. Oh, somebody would that would actually text during a, a podcast. Well, podcasting, I would frown on that. Yeah, it's, it's how I mean, we've all done it, but. Oh, I haven't. I haven't done it on this podcast. Okay, good. I've done it. <laughs> Definitely done it. Now, Dagan. Okay. Let's begin with the first of 10 items. This one's a little more eclectic, I think, than the others we've done. I think this is the fifth one we've done. And this, this one, I five, think, is a little yeah. more eclectic. This might be the most challenging one, oh, actually. I'm but I want you to dig deep okay. about these. And I don't okay. want you to overthink it. Don't overthink it. Dig deep, I, but don't overthink it. Think deep, but don't overthink it. Number one is Kurt Vonnegut's The Sirens of Titan. Oh, my God. My favorite Vonnegut book. Is that right? Yes. I don't even know this book. Now, what year did that fine mm. work of American fiction get Tell published? Tell me the title one more time because I don't the know. The Sirens book. of Titan. Okay. Got it. Um. Now, this is tough because he was an active writer or is an active writer. Sure. Sure. For fucking 60 years. So yeah. this can really be anywhere. Yeah. This is a tough one. Absolutely. Vonnegut was on was on Charlie Rose a couple of times, right? Is that right? I think so. Yeah, he's, he's a, he actually does give a lot of interviews. Really, he's like the opposite of dude. Really seems like a cool guy, actually. Yeah, he he's um, very distinct looking. But too. I don't know that many of his books, with the exception of like maybe the mo- the the biggest. So I'll say, I'm just gonna say 1970. I'll be try to be safe. I don't All know. Right, 1970. What year did CBS's 60 Minutes first air? Oh, wow. Uh, I'll say 1960. What year was the first nationally televised color TV broadcast in the United States? What year? I will even tell you what the broadcast was. It was of the Rose Bowl, the Rose Parade. Okay. Here in Los Angeles. 1948. 1948. What year did the United States detonate the first hydrogen bomb mm. thermonuclear device thermonuclear bomb what year i'll say 42 what year did buster douglas beat mike tyson Buster douglas one I'll of the say, great upsets in boxing yeah it really was i would say 1988 what year did nintendo first release the game and watch oh wow 82 what year was the first WrestleMania? WrestleMania one. Wow. Okay, let me think. I'll say eighty-three. What year did we land on the moon? Uh, that would be sixty-eight. What year did Alien come out? The movie. Alien. Alien. Nineteen seventy-nine. And finally, yeah. What year did Super Castlevania four launch? Super Castlevania four, the North American, because that wasn't a, that actually wasn't a Japanese game, was it? No, it was. Oh, came what out the it? same year in both territories. Same year, okay. Yep. Uh, Super Castle, which might actually give it away. Uh, ninety-two. Okay, the one you got most wrong. Yeah, I'm curious about this. Is it Vonnegut? Yes. Okay. So some, I got, I missed a couple by a pretty wide mark because it was you couldn't you couldn't see it right away. All right. So which one should I redo? The Vonnegut one. Yeah. That's uh, the one you got most. I'll on. say 60. Okay. Because I said 70 initially. Right. Okay. 
So Sirens of Titans up first. You said 1970, 1960 revision, much closer. Okay. 1959. 59, okay. 60 Minutes. You said 1960. It's actually 1968. CBS is 60 Minutes. 68? Yep, 68. Wow, that late? Because I remember the 50th anniversary was last year. Okay. The first national color TV broadcast, you said 48. It was yeah. 54. That's a pretty good guess, 54? though. 54? Yeah, 19, January 1st, 1954. First people... national television broadcast. National, I guess. They did local ones in the 40s. Yeah. But that's the first one that everyone can get. That everyone got. Okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. I should have thought that through a little better. The hydrogen bomb. This was the one other one you got pretty wrong. Yeah. You said 42. We didn't even detonate an atom bomb until 45. The answer is 52. Okay, because that was the second iteration of the nuclear bomb. Right, five hundred times the yield of the high of the uh, Hiroshima. Okay, bomb. I was I was I was actually confused which one came first. I didn't even know that. Buster Douglas beat Tyson. You said nineteen eighty eight. It's a good guess. Nineteen ninety was the year. Okay, I knew it was somewhere in that wheelhouse. Game and watch again. You said eighty two. Another good guess. Eighty. It's eighty. Nineteen eighty. Wow. I think Ball in- or whatever that one was called was the first one. Okay, pretty close. The first WrestleMania, another good guess, 83. It's 85. Oh, wow. That was no, that was one. 85 was number one. I was surprised by that. I guess when I was when I wrote it there, because I write these all down and I don't know the answers to all of them, actually. Okay. So I or I have like, again, I'm in the window, which is exactly what this is all about, is to see how close you can get in the window. To them. Yeah, yeah. I thought 82. Okay, but it's, so, so you said 83. It's 85. 85. Okay. That was the first one. Landed on the moon. You said 68. It's 69. Ah, oh, damn it. I knew it was one of those. Alien came out in 1979. You got that one. Okay, nailed that one. And then Super Castlevania 4, you were close. You said 92. The answer is actually 1991. 91. Damn it. Okay. Came out at the very end of 91 in the US. Okay. So that's that. Not too bad. No. I'm not, I'm not thrilled. It's a good showing. It wasn't your best showing, but it was a good showing. Nonetheless. Yeah, that you're just being kind. Now, Dagan. Yeah. Again, we have to discuss how we want to cover this. This was a winning topic over on Patreon. If you support us on patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, another one of your perks that you can get is that we present basically a bunch of fan submitted topics that other fans vote on. And then the one that's most voted on at the end of the month based on our system that you guys can learn about over on Patreon. Right. We do a topic on that. And we're all caught up. We, we launched the show in February of 2017. We're recording this in what? April of 2000. No, no, we launched it. I'm sorry. February of 2018. Right. Is that what I said originally? Or did I say 2017? I think what, he's, whatever. Whatever it was. It's 2018. Dustin, just cut it. Yeah. Th- Edit no, it. it doesn't matter. Make Colin look smarter. I know. That's the entire <laughs> idea of editing. But we're recording this one over a year later. I know. And we've, you know, we've had, so we've had over a dozen of these topics. And this is another one of the topics at hand that we have to do for the audience that I'm happy to do. But we really do have to figure out our way through this. Sure. 90s Nicktoons is a pretty broad topic. So I've actually narrowed the list down. There's a lot to talk about. And if you if there's if I have any here that I want to talk about that's not on your list, we'll touch on them really briefly. That's all. Yeah, I think I mean, we can do whatever you want. Because I'm happy some to talk. of these came yeah. out very late in the 90s. Right. So it depends what you want to define as 90s because, it's you know, you have a 10 year window here, really, you know. So whatever you want to do. Yeah, I'm like looking at my list. So here's the list I've narrowed down. OK, please. Of like notable night, what I would consider 90s Nicktoons. Yep. Ren and Stimpy. Yep. Doug and Rugrats. Those are the original three. Of course. Rocco's Modern Life was the next one up. And then Ah Real Monsters is after that. Yep. In terms of its sequential order. Right. Now, those are all shows that are contained within the 90s. Then I added three more that started in the 90s and concluded in the 20s. In other words, they stopped and started within the 90s. Right. There are five Nicktoons. Yeah. Again, Ren and Stimpy, Doug, Rugrats, Rocco, and Real Monsters all started and stopped in the 90s. Absolutely. Hey Arnold, 
Yep. Cat, Dog, and Angry Beavers yep. are three other notable ones that I figured we can talk about that began in the 90s but ended in the 2000s. Cat, Dog ended in 2005. So Yeah, that went pretty far. So I, I, do you have any other ones on the list, yes. on your list, that are not those? Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. All right. So let's begin, I guess, with these, and okay. then we can kind of touch on all the other ones. Okay, sure. And I, I want to start with Ren and Stimpy because that's the one we've talked about most recently. I really, you know... I don't want to do this, generally speaking. I think we can talk about it a little bit if you want. I'm going to leave it up to you. Okay. But I really do feel like we can just refer people to the Ren and Stimpy episode. I don't know that we have to talk about Ren and Stimpy again. Yeah. I mean, you know what, Kyle? We, we did cover it. We did a whole episode of Ren and Stimpy, of course, quite deserving. And I'm, I'm really, I'm very fond of Ren and Stimpy. I'm very fond of, you know, Spumco's work. So I'm really glad that we started there. I mean, one thing you could say about Ren and Stimpy, I think, is that First of all, how much it inspired everything that not only in its immediate periphery, like all of these shows, all of its contemporaries, but what it inspired later and how much it stands out just in terms of really hearkening back to an old school Looney Tunes formula in terms of quality and in terms of producing something that really had it had no peer, but it also had, it was really an untemplated production. In fact, it, there was no, there were real, there was real, there was no real pattern to Ren and Stimpy. In fact, it stressed that, you know, John Christopher Lucy and everybody that made the show really stressed originality, never doing the same drawing twice. You know, it was never, it was never set in the same location twice it was really an animated variety show and again hearkening back to the looney tunes in terms of the characters you know ren and stimpy were the main characters their personalities were a through line but they could be anything those characters could be anything or anyone from episode to episode the episode could be set anywhere from episode to episode so there was no reuse there was no template it was always new and it was always fresh and it was always really beautifully animated there was no repeating there was no cycling which none of these other shows have even the most even the ones of the highest integrity even things like rugrats were somewhat templated in fact you know they would always be set in the same location that was always in the house it was always in the nursery the kids nursery it was always in the kitchen whatever it was so ren and really stood out in terms of quality and in terms of really not having any kind of mold you know, you know what I mean? It had no real, there was no real mold. There was no real containment. It was just always different. And that really, it really smacked of something that was really high quality production because of that, because of the way it was produced. And I think as a result of that, as a result of that quality, I think it was very hard for anything else to stand up to it. I think Ren and Snippy really stands out, you know, not only against its immediate contemporaries in Rugrats and Doug, but... And those three make a really, we talked about this already a little bit, but th- those three make a really nice package because they're all so decisively different. But Ren and Stimpy really stands out in terms of like, it was really like nothing else. And even the things that tried to emulate it later on, like, you know, Snookums and Meat or, you know, some of the stuff that Cartoon Network did later on, it never really caught the same lightning in a bottle that Ren and Stimpy did. So that's what I would say about Ren and Stimpy. Definitely, like Colin said, referring you back to our Ren and Stimpy episode where we get much, it's really a deep dive into the series, the people who made it, 
the specific, we talk about specific episodes. We talk about production methods. We talk about Spumco. We talk about a little bit about even, we even get into John K, you know, everything that John K was embroiled in in the last few years, all the controversy and all the, you know, all of his missteps. So, and we talk about Vanessa Coffey, which we'll, we'll talk about her more as a Nickelodeon executive who really championed Spumco. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's enough. You know, I think that's enough said. Unless there's anything else you want to say about Ren and Stimpy. No, I mean, I love this show. I think it's a fantastic show. It's a memorable so brilliant, show. Really you know? funny. I think it's still funny. I think there's still fu- a lot of funny bits on it. I think it's a really watchable show to this day. And it's funny. I, I hold it in really high esteem along with Doug, who, which I also hold in high esteem. It's Rugrats that really is the odd man out to me in this in this initial wave. And we can talk more about that when we get to it. But that's interesting. As far as and I guess I should have probably set this up It's probably a little sloppy of me as a host, but I guess I should have set up too, just for foreign listeners or listeners that just aren't familiar with Nickelodeon and the way we were doing things here uh, with Nickelodeon back in the day. Nicktoons was this brand, this kind of sub brand that was launched in the summer of 1991 that was supposed to represent like a new generation of animated Nickelodeon kind of properties. And these properties actually weren't all owned by Nickelodeon. Some of them actually prominently weren't on other channels, including Ren and Stimpy and later on Doug. Yeah. But this was Nintendo's kind of foray in a kind of funding and producing and helping to bring to market some really high quality cartoons like Dagan was saying. And eventually there was a spinoff channel and I think still exists a spinoff channel called Nicktoons that started in 2002. That's when the brand kind of stopped and this channel was founded. And so I just wanted to kind of square that up, that that's kind of the what we're talking about here is Absolutely. Nickelodeon, uh, original Nickelodeon at the time, original Nickelodeon animated content. And Kyle, if I might, if you don't mind, just for a minute, just to ca- kind of give you guys context, especially you younger guys and girls out there, you know, this is a very notable time period in television animation because one, you're switching from the networks to cable. And Nickelodeon was taking a big chance if you think of the atmosphere and sort of the climate that we were coming out of going into the 90s in terms of television animation because we were really coming out of in the 80s, all through the 80s, but it started really in the late 70s, early 80s, but all through the 80s was really coming out of that cartoon processing plant, you know, slash factory, slash assembly line of producing cartoons largely based on pre-existing IPs and sort of producing animation and producing cartoon programming as toy commercials, quote unquote. So a lot of, you know, producing things on the cheap, producing things on very tight budgets, on very tight schedules. You know, you have, you know, all the animation houses like Filmation, Hanna-Barbera, Ruby Spears, Disney was involved in it, you know, in a higher budget context. But Everything was about ex- pre-existing IP. There was very few, there's, there's exceptions, but very few things were created from scratch and everything was designed to sell merchandise. Everything was designed to sell toys. Everything was designed to sell products. And I say everything, there are notable standouts. You could think of things that happened in the 80s that were really cool. Things like Galaxy High and Mysterious Cities of Gold and DuckTales to some extent, Disney's Gummy Bears, things that were things that, you know, there were special things that slipped through during that era that were really cool and really special. But for the most part, you're talking about a whole decade where animation content was A, either Saturday morning and B and or also just designed really to sell merchandise. So you're talking about now a whole era of an experiment of really trying to entice and find fresh talent and fresh voices to create cartoons with no pre-existing IP 
and just create all new from scratch, brand new content. And, you know, in particularly looking for quote unquote edgy young creators to create new things to see if, you know, this was a whole new model. This was a very, this was a really big risk, you know, and Nickelodeon, you know, again, under the, under the, at this point, under the auspices, under the umbrella of before Nickelodeon became Viacom, you have to remember too, before Viacom swooped in in the early aughts, early to mid aughts, Nickelodeon, MTV, VH1, they were owned by Warner Communications. So they were all under the same umbrella. And there was a really sort of, there was a really cool outlook on creativity and creative direction and sort of a bohemian stance on let's try something new. You know, you could see see it with MTV, which came a little earlier. And a lot of those creatives, including guys like Fred Seibert, who was the creative director of MTV, you know, a friend of mine and a really cool guy, you know, not, not name dropping, but I know Fred and I know him and I know his history. And later on went to be, you know, went on to be the president of Hanna-Barbera and switched into Cartoon Network and created Cartoon Network's, you know, sort of um, creator-driven cartoon, you know, new cartoon stuff and, you know, everything that came out of that, Dexter's and Powerpuff and Johnny Bravo and Cow and Chicken and Courage the Cowardly Dog and all that kind of stuff. But this was a whole new era in kind of wiping the slate clean and letting a new generation come in and try new things, you know, to great cost and to great, you know, it was a re- really was a big experiment. So that's really important to analyze it in that context of what we were coming out of, you know, to really make it known that this was a whole new thing. This was really a, a big difference for what came before. And it's worth noting, since you brought up some of these 80s shows that we have talked about in the past, that we also did an episode about Nickelodeon in the 80s very early on in our run of talkback. So. You can go check that out. I think that was in like the first or second wave or maybe not. Maybe it was a little later, but it's an older episode and you can go check that out if you want more insight into that as well. Absolutely. Since that's a really wonderful time for Nickelodeon. It was so nostalgic. Now let's talk about Doug next. Okay. I want to begin by using a question here. Actually, it's a really a comment from and a question, I guess, as well, but from Alex Castellanos wrote into us over on Patreon like you can and says, hey, guys, I love the Nicktoons lineup through and through as a kid, young adult. Slash young adult, I should say. But my favorite had to be Doug. His soft-spoken nature, his quirky friends, and his love for drawing and how he would try to escape and solve his problems through his wild imagination really endeared me to him. Also, thoughts on Quail Man and those great songs Doug would write or would be written by the beats. There is a lot to this show. This show, Doug, ran from 91 to 94 in its Nickelodeon run. And I think it ran from 96 to 99 when it was on Disney. Yep. And seven seasons, cumulatively 117 episodes. I was reading a little bit about... How I guess the Nickelodeon run is really considered a superior version of the show. I don't know yeah. if that's widely held, but uh, I, I don't, think so. I don't even know that I'm really familiar with the Disney era of Doug. Did you ever see those? I don't know. I don't think that I did. And I, we could talk if you want to talk about we could talk about why. And once Jumbo was and Doug was bought by Disney, why it changed and everything like that. We could get into all that if you feel like you, we have time. But Yeah, sure. I mean, we can we should talk about it as deeply as we want to. Yeah, really yeah, no, yeah. no time. Constraints. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So. Doug, to me, I, I always really enjoyed. I, I found it similar to Mr. Castellanos here. I found it a similarly endearing. And it was a really easy show to watch. Like, it, it didn't it didn't have any high drama, nor did it not relate to me. Like, Rugrats was really strange. Uh, I thought Ren and Stimpy was unbelievable. So this was like kind of hit that sweet spot in that pocket. Yeah. For me. But uh, what? how do you feel about Doug? And you worked uh, at, at that studio later on. So I did. And now... 
Yeah, Doug was is a really interesting one for me and sort of a really personal one and endearing one for me. Not because I honestly loved the show so much as a kid, but because I grew to know all of these people, including Jim Jenkins, who created Doug and David Campbell to a lesser extent. And like I was saying, my friend Jack and I work with a couple of people now at Sesame who worked on, you know, older guys. I work with a lot of guys that are in their 50s that worked on, you know, worked on Doug in their career, you know, that came a couple of generations before me in the industry and um, Doug has a really funny, and Jim in general have a really funny attachment to Sesame Workshop because Jim made his, Jim really, his dream in life and what he really wanted to achieve was to be a puppeteer and work at Sesame Workshop. That was always his goal. And, you know, Jim, a guy being from Richmond, Virginia, you know, a Virginia guy, always, but always loved New York, I think ended up going to school in Ohio and was very involved with Nickelodeon in its heyday before and again Colin referred you guys back to our old Nickelodeon episode which was Nickelodeon in its formative years basically before Nickelodeon was even called Nickelodeon it was called Pinwheel and Jim worked at Nickelodeon slash Pinwheel during that era worked on the show Pinwheel and that's where he cut his teeth and you know went on later on to work for R.O. Blackman at the anime you know the famous illustrator at his studio in New York City called the Ink Tank. So really, Jim has a really interesting background, but I love talking about Doug and Jumbo because it was such a big New York thing. Jumbo Pictures and Doug, especially the Nickelodeon run of Doug, was such a big New York thing. And I remember the old building downtown because they were up on the 10th floor of a skyscraper. And it had the most, I was, I was in, I never worked there before, but it was a beautiful building and they had a like really majestic view looking uptown towards the Empire State Building. It was just gorgeous. Now I worked for Jim in his second sort of iteration of his whole thing, which was later on at Jumbo, sort of the in-between years between Jumbo and what would later become Cartoon Pizza. But I didn't start working at Jumbo until the Disney years. So that's when I was employed with them. But this era was so cool. And what I always loved about Doug was how different it was compared to everything else. Because even th- Doug was always felt softer to me. It always felt gentler, calmer. And in fact, of course, as we know, it was much more, Doug was a cartoon much more grounded in reality. It seemed much more realistic. In fact, Jim famously said that if you dropped an anvil on Doug's head, he would die. You know, that's the way he described Doug. It wasn't a cartoony cartoon, a mad cat. I love that. Thing. I actually really love that. Quote. But yeah, yeah. He, that's the way he just sum, summed it up in, in comparison to all its contemporaries, especially Ren and Stimpy, which was very madcap and kinetic and crazy. And Rugrats, which was not only, you know, Rugrats, I think, was a more grounded cartoon. But I think what made Rugrats seem so, you know, nutty was that you know, Eastern European drawing style that was kind of ugly and sort of off-putting. Doug was much simpler. It was much calmer. It was much softer the way it was colored, the way it was drawn. It was rounder. You know, Doug was sort of a calm character. And, you know, one thing that maybe not a lot of people know about Doug is it's a very, the show is produced with a really, I don't want to, I don't want to label it the wrong way, especially because I care so much about Jim and he's such an awesome dude. But it had a very Christian fundamental background to it. It had a very Christian fundamental under underpinnings to the show. But what was very important to Jim was that that wasn't beating people over the head and that it wasn't too, it wasn't too overtly 
obnoxious. I'm not even really sure that I knew that. Did that you was, know that? No, I didn't know that. In that was... fact, he would famously in the writers' room for the show, and a lot of people wrote for the show, including people that were involved in Pete and Pete, and a lot of people came and went with the show. But Jim would always write. They always based each episode on sort of a moral or a goal that Doug would be trying to achieve, like f- whatever it was, like a one or two sentence, one or two word thing, like fairness or friendship or sharing, whatever it was. And they would have to, and he would write that, literally handwrite it on top of the script so they would remember to try to base the episode with that sort of underpinning and that sort of fundamental in mind. So, But what I always loved about Jim was he never wanted to be obnoxious about it. He never wanted to offend anybody with it. It was just very important for him to have to be so substantive and to put that sort of substance in there. You know, so that was, and I, you could see it. If you really look for it, you could see it because there's nothing, there's not, you know, you have a lot of cartoons and I think there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And I think even when it's not, things aren't mean spirited, they could become mean spirited. There's a lot of different voices. There's sort of a cacophony of, you know, a mixture of sort of, you know, voices involved in the thing. And it, the th- special thing about Doug, especially if you know Jim, is that it's Jim's voice through the whole thing. You know, not only through the character of Doug, but just through the whole thing. And I think because Doug was also such an autobiographical thing, not only were a lot of the characters based on people in Jim's life and in his past, but a lot of the places were too. I mean, it's, it's, you know, he's uh, really talking about Richmond in this cartoon, which is uh, really cool. You know, it's really cool. It's very deeply personal to Jim. And I know a lot of the people that worked on this show, and we worked on a lot of things at Jumbo and later on at Cartoon Pizza. We worked on a lot of stuff for Disney. We worked on a lot of really cool stuff. But I think everybody was the most proud of this show. And I, I, I always lament being like, you know, it's too bad I wasn't five years younger because I could have had a ch- maybe had a chance to work on this with those guys. And that would have been a lot of fun. You know, and I think that, I think... I think I, what I love about it is how much it stands out against not only Ren and Stimpy and Rugrats, but if you look at the whole body of work, Angry Beavers, Catdog, Kablam, you know, all the things that, you know, it's a lot zanier, you know, and Doug seems much more grounded. And I think that's what made it stand out. And I love the I love the contrast. Yeah, the contrast, the dichotomy, especially between Ren and Stimpy and Doug at the same time, like really airing, I think, on the same, like on the same night is so interesting in that Nickelodeon would not only seek out such different shows but allow them although I'm of the mind that I'm not sure Nickelodeon necessarily knew what they were getting with Ren and Stimpy they probably understood more what they were getting long term with Doug yeah but I could be wrong about and that. Rug- and Rugrats because they know they knew Klasky Chupo for so long leading up to you know there were so many relationships John K was really a- John K wasn't a newcomer to the industry but you know he was sort of a protege of Ralph Bakshi and if anything he was sort of a bad boy so they probably that was more of a risk than the other, you know, the other, you know, Arlene Klasky and Gabor and, you know, Gabor Chupo were married. I mean, they were a married couple that ran a studio and they were already deeply involved in commercial animation. And, you know, they were, you know, they had a, re- a lot of integrity and they had a style, you know, they had a house style and they were easy to work with, you know, reliable and dependable. So, yeah, John Kay was definitely the wild card. I'm curious at your time at Jumbo, you had mentioned that, you know, they all kind of look most fondly back at Doug or whatever. Definitely. What was the office and the environment built around Doug? Like a lot of like I, I often think about video game studios. I love that. Like Insomniac has shit ton of Ratchet and Clank stuff everywhere and resistance stuff and, and whatnot. If sure. you go to Sucker Punch, it's all infamous. Right. You know, and Sly Cooper. 
So I'm wondering, was it like a dog themed office? Because that's what they built there. Right, exactly. Yeah, you know what I remember about a car? When I came into when I came into um, Jumbo, they were transitioning from Jumbo. Disney had bought them. It wasn't it wasn't really known. It wasn't like public knowledge that Disney had bought them yet. And I don't know if that was sort of a mandate by Michael Eisner or what it was, but because he was, I believe he was the he was Disney the Disney guy at that time, but. When I first got in there to work in-house, they had already moved to the Sesame Workshop building. They had an entire floor. They weren't Cartoon Pizza yet, but they weren't Jumbo anymore. They had like a transitional name. I forget what they were calling themselves. They were calling it like like JP Filmworks or something. And this was like a matter of like six months. They were transitioning and trying to keep things, you know, kind of covert. And when I came in, they were working on a Disney series called Stanley which was based on a famous children's book. It was a really beautiful series. And they were working on that, and they were working on Jim's second or third cartoon, something a little lesser known, but people may remember, called PB&J Otter, which I guess was for Disney as well. And so those are the two big things. But what I do remember is all the executives, like the producers, the line producers, the exec producers, Jack, who was president of Jumbo at that time, they all, even the accountants and like the lawyers and stuff like that, they all had framed cells of Doug hanging in their offices, which was kind of cool. And, you know, for me growing up, you know, Doug came out when I was later in high school. For me, I was a younger guy when that came out. But, you know, being such an animation, you know, nut and being such an animation aficionado, you know, that was always kind of starstruck by that, you know, and a lot of the guys I worked for, the art directors and the lead story people and the timing director at that time, they were all they were all promoted now, but they were all kind of cut their teeth on Doug. They were just storyboard artists and storyboard revisionists and, you know, assistants. And some of them were like, you know, even P, you know, probably PAs at that point. So they had already they were already promoted. But the guys I was working for, were working for at that time, the guys that were like 10 years older than me, they had when they were younger, they had cut their teeth on Doug. So that was kind of cool to have that legacy you know, in there. Yeah, that's super neat. So that was that was actually really cool. I, I know a little less about the Disney Doug period, but I know that they were, you know, Jim was certainly less involved because they had so many now obligations with other things that Disney was expecting them to do. PB&J Otter, Stanley, they later did um, JoJo Circus and a bunch of other things that were, you know, demand. So Jim was sort of spread out over many different things not just his brainchild. So, you know, the vision became more watered down. Jim became less involved, not, you know, no, through no fault of his own. He just couldn't, you know, he was like, you know, he only had so many hands, you know, David became less involved. And, you know, so that was, and they, you know, they say that initial vision was a little watered down. Disney is notoriously, you know, Nickelodeon was notoriously, you know, hands off and Disney was notoriously hands on. So, you know, how many revisions did Disney mandate and stuff like that? So I think that's what you're looking at, you know, the difference of that time between Nickelodeon and Disney, because Nickelodeon was no Disney at that time. You know, Nickelodeon grew to be a Disney, which, you know, Jerry Laybourne predicted they would be, and everybody laughed at her. But they did, you know, through these things that we're talking about today, they did become like Disney. Right. You know. Right. The embryonic state. Exactly. As it were. The next show that I think we should talk about is obviously the third of this initial offering that we saw in Nicktoons. Again, that launched August 11th, 1991. It was Ren and Stimpy, it was Doug, and it was Rugrats. And 
Rugrats run is really interesting to me because it, it lasted forever. You know, we and we didn't say earlier, Doug, uh, maybe I did Doug seven seasons, 117 episodes bo- across both runs. Rugrats was nine seasons over 172 episodes plus a couple of movies, but ran from yeah. 1991 to 2004. So there's obviously like spread out seasons and years that were missed and all of the rest. But uh, I'm curious how you feel about Rugrats because I'm just not really drawn into this show at all. In fact, Jacob Lawler wrote into us over on Patreon and says, did anyone else find the animation of Ariel Monsters, which we'll talk about in a little while, sure. and Rugrats a little unsettling? I don't know that it was the animation that was unsettling. The art style was really dissonant with the subject matter. And I don't know if that was like intentional or if I was missing something, but I really hated the art of like, I hate that art. Style. I was going to ask. And, you. and you were going to you were saying that that's basically their house art style. Like that's oh, the way they're, they're committed to it. Like it's not. Well, it's completely fucking ridiculous. I was about to say it's not good. That's ridiculous because they have made an incredible fucking minted a fortune based on it they have not only with the cartoons popular cartoons but also with commercials so that's ridiculous but it's just not pleasant to me and it ruined the series for me it just i didn't and you didn't like it when you were little no i I mean it came out in again 91 so the summer 91 i would have been like seven i remember loving doug immediately and i loved doug like through my adult years like i still watched Doug, like would watch doug it's very endearing and red and stimpy i mean i've seen all those episodes too not the later like Cartoon Network ones. Right, right. But with Rugrats, I don't know that I've seen more than a couple dozen of those episodes, maybe. And I just never really liked it. I just I, I liked some of it. I liked the perspective of it. I liked that it was about babies and stuff. But even that wasn't really that unique because we had like the Muppet babies and shit like that. That was sure. kind of kind of similar in some sure. ways. I actually kind of look at them as similar. The difference between the two shows is that you don't really ever see the adults you see like that woman's legs, which I love. Yeah, right? I like, never that's, saw her face. Yeah, I th- which I thought was like so clever and so cool. The parents play a pretty pivotal role actually in Rugrats. So there, there is do. a difference and there are a lot. There are a lot of adults in Rugrats, but there are. I don't know. I just don't care for it. I don't know. I don't know how you feel. And about that's it. how you felt about it when you were little, too. Yeah, I just never liked it. It you wasn't anything that like I just was turned off by later or whatever, because I'm not like that. If I liked something back in the day. I'll still talk about it, at least why I like it, even if I've evolved. Sure, sure. Out of it. But I never liked Rugrats. It just never, yeah. never appealed to me. I, I don't understand it. I think it's very polarizing and very divisive due to its visual style. But, you know, again, talking about Klasky Chupo is an animation studio, very important to talk about in this conversation because they were they were like almost like the second arm of Nickelodeon, although Nickelodeon had nothing to do with them. They were you know, except that they paid them to do all this. amazing. they were a second know, all party these series, right. right? They were not affiliated besides, be, you know, besides running their shows on the on the network. But Klasky Chupo, very interesting because, you know, founded by Arlene Klasky and Gabor Chupo, who were once ma- a married couple. Eventually, they they weren't together, but they were at one time a married couple and ran this, you know, were very involved in. You know, both came from a very specific art background. They both, they didn't come from a business background at all. They started this animation studio together. They did odd projects, things for Sesame Street, you know, shorts for Sesame Street, commercials, whatever they could get. And Rugrats was their first, you know, quote unquote, big thing, you know, to the tune of, like Colin said, a 13 year run, 172 episodes, nine seasons. That's nothing to sneeze at. That's a huge run for a cartoon. And I think what makes... Klasky Chupo successful, not just through Rugrats, which was their biggest thing and, you know, one of the biggest things ever, actually. But obviously they had a lot of things, Rocket Power, Wild Thornberries, Real Monsters. They had a lot of things. But 
I think what makes them so successful is just that it's an authentic vision and they stick to it. They were very adamant about, you know, their whole philosophy behind animation was not everything has to look like Disney. We're not trying to be cute. We're trying to, and they don't call the style ugly. They try, they call it strange. We'd rather have a strange, we'd rather make the stuff look strange and different than try to make everything look cutesy and, you know, adorable like Disney. They were against that. They had a much more fine art sense, what they considered a fine art sensibility in the work. You know, Gabor being of Hungarian descent, it has a very Eastern European, the art has a very Eastern European look, has a very almost Russian sensibility to it. Um, And they were very committed to that art style. And they really, you know, and they carried that through from series to series. And I think what makes it, I think what makes it successful, even if you don't like it, or even if it's off-putting, is that it's authentic. You know, it's theirs through and through. There's nothing watered down about it. There's not, you know, this unwelcome, you know, conflicting voices. It's just, it's one harmonious voice. It's one harmonious style. What I like about Rugrats, now I will say that when I was in high school and when I was younger, you know, early in college, I thought it was an ugly style too. You know, we all did. It was like, oh, that's not cool. You know, like that's not a cool looking style. That's not, that's, that looks terrible, you know. But I went, I came to appreciate it as my, I think as my as I, as my art taste became more sophisticated, I guess, and as I became a little more open-minded about what art can be. And a big part of that for me, Kyle, was, and a big part of what inspired a lot of these people, especially we'll get into Joe Murray later with Rocco's Modern Life, was, you know, the early 90s, the anthology program, animated programming, pro- programming on MTV, especially liquid television which I couldn't wait to talk about because that was such a big inspiration for me. And what, you know, Liquid Television gave us a lot of creative voices to a lot of young creative voices and guys like Mike Judge, guys like Peter Chung, you know, and of course you could talk about Beavis and Butthead. And, you know, it even gets into people that weren't related to the Warner Communications slash Viacom properties like, you know, the Tracy Ullman Simpsons, Mac Roning's earlier work and stuff like that. But what I always loved about Rugrats was that sort of adherence to a vision. And as I got older and as I became a little more schooled in art and, you know, again, you could come out of art school and still not appreciate it. For me, I, be- I gained an appreciation for the look and the style. And we learned, I think I explained this on a previous episode, we learned a lot about storyboarding and staging shots and just cinematography and animation through Rugrats because of sort of the worm's eye you know, point of view and sort of that baby's, you know, POV and seeing everything from a, you know, from a really low angle and what this perspective would look like and being able to push things and exaggerate things and make a shot interesting and thinking about staging and how can this look more interesting. We learned a lot about that. We were taught a lot about that in um, animation school. I remember having a background design class, an earlier background design class um, with one teacher. And then later on, another guy that we'll talk about during this episode, another one of my professors who worked on this block of programming, not on this show, but this block of programming taught a lot about storyboarding through this show. So that's what I always appreciated through, rug, you know, with rug, with Rugrats. I never sat, in all honesty, I never sat and really watched episodes. You know, I would watch a couple of minutes of it. I thought it was very colorful. I could see kids being, especially really little kids being engaged by it because it's very colorful. 
Um, and the voice acting is also very engaging, I think, for little kids. But that's where I would, you know, that's where I would put, and you know, there's a lot of cool anecdotal stuff about Rugrats too. Like Peter Chung, who a lot of people who would know created Eon Flux for for Liquid Television for MTV, he um, directed the pilot episode of Rugrats. And he also designed a lot of the characters, a lot of Gabor Chupo's original designs. Peter Chung did the final pass on those character designs. So, you know, a lot of kind of cool little... Mark Mothersbaugh did the um, all the music for early on in the, you know, Devo's Mark Mothersbaugh, who does a lot of animated content, not just Rugrats, but he was the composer early on for Rugrats for the first few years. So there, a lot of people were involved in that, in the show. And, you know, again, I think it's a nice... You know, I think Vanessa Coffey, who is a, uh, one of the key executives under Jerry Laybourne during this time, who kind of ran the shows, you sort of a line, sort of an exec producer and earlier on a line producer for these shows and sort of was the um, sort of was the studio facing producer that was the liaison between Nick and the studios doing the service work and doing the shows. She referred to these first three, Doug, Ren and Stimpy and Rugrats as a meal. And she always would say, like, Doug was that meal that was, like, good for you. It was wholesome. They had the veggies. It was, like, the four food groups or whatever. And Rugrats was also, like, a passable, nutritious meal, but it was more the fun thing to eat, like the spaghetti and meatballs. And Ren and Stimpy was just straight up, like, the dessert, like the, the you know, cloying, sugary dessert. You know, and I always thought that was a clever way of saying it. And I don't even know if it was on purpose that they had this juxtaposition of these three series, but I liked the balance because it almost seemed like there was something for everybody. Is it difficult to hire talent at a studio when you have to make everything that like all your design work, for instance, is still going to look like it was designed by someone else? Like, I've always wondered that, like, I, I can't speak about animation studios, but I know at game studios, like game studios, you know, acquire specific talent that makes specific games, right? Sure. If you make shooters, that's kind of like your wheelhouse. You go make shooters. You make, you know, third person action games, you go make third person action games. Whatever. Right. But if you're des- like, I feel like having like a, a house design style is really weird to me because it doesn't allow like anyone else to come in and create something big, you know, or at least something that looks different. I see what you're saying. That's just strange to me, because like if even if someone else created wild thornberries, for instance, maybe it's someone else like outside of uh, that and like that, that core team created those characters. But it doesn't look like they created those characters. No one would know that. Right. I'm sure they're fucking real at school. They didn't look like the wild thornberries did. Right. right. You know, I guess that's what I'm saying. So I, I, I'm a little concerned. Con- not concerned. I don't really care that much about. It. I'm confused. Yeah. Why you wouldn't want to get a bunch of talent and say, like, let's make some, let's make whatever looks good or whatever looks interesting or strange. Right. But it doesn't have to look like I made it all. You Plus, know? wouldn't you think that weird. would be boring to do the same thing over and over again? I would think so. I think you could run it one of two ways. I think you could run it like Klasky Chupo always ran it, or I think you could run it like you know, like I think I would want to run a studio where you, it's a different thing every time, and also not only in the spirit of. You know, I understand wanting to have a harmonious product, but it does seem, I know what you're saying, it does seem a little closed-minded to always stay sort of within that same box. But what I would think would be more challenging and would be more fun is to try something new with every outing to challenge yourself, to sort of spread yourself a little bit and say, let me reach a little further now and try something new. Let me work with somebody, let me bring in this art director and try this. And we could always strive for quality, we could always strive for a really brilliant end product, but let's try to do it a different way. Let's try something. You know, maybe that's dangerous. Maybe people are maybe people that run shops are afraid because they want to have like a calling card and they're afraid that being too diverse 
you know, confuses people, which it does. I mean, I've had people, I think, I don't know if I've ever explained this on the show. I've had people, I've sat in interviews with people that were executives of major studios that were confused that I was an animator and a character designer. Like, they were like, like what? I've, you do what? You do both things? Like, that doesn't, you know, like, they were so confused by it. And they were like, well, what, you know, like, getting flustered by it. Like, well, what do you like to do better? And I was like, well, I, lo- I love to do both things. I've been a lead animator. I've been a lead designer. I've been an art director. I love to animate. I, you know, I think animation is wonderful. I have the patience for it. Well, I don't understand how you could do, like, what, like, it's, you know, the, it's such a, it's such an industry, you know, built on fear in many ways. And, a, you know, an industry built on thinking that you have to specialize. But maybe, you know, maybe some people are good at more than one thing. You know what I mean? So I think there's that mentality sometimes in animation. And I always dreamed about, you know, being a being a podcaster and sort of sort of challenging. I love the animation industry and I'm not a very controversial guy, but I do want to kind of hold the animation industry to a higher standard sometimes. And I think it's kind of cool to talk about, you know, I think in the past in animation, especially like 20 years ago, people were afraid animators and people involved in the industry were afraid to speak out especially when they were working in the industry for fear of being blackballed and fear of being, you know, tossed out of the union or whatever, but things aren't like that anymore. You know, I think that we should hold the things that we love to a higher standard. And I want to do that for the animation industry. And I think there is too much fear in the animation industry. You know, I think there is too much, I think there's too much bullshit. And I think that, you know, there has to be room for everything. If you want to operate like a classic Chupo and that works for you, that's fine. If you want to have an animation studio and, you know, be more experimental and try new things, that should be okay too. You know what I mean? But there shouldn't be, there's such a latent fear for being an animator. And I think, you know, sometimes it's understandable because it's very hard. It's a very hard industry. It's very competitive. There's only so many, you know, it's very specialized. So there's only, there's only so many people allowed to do it because there's only so many spots. You know what I mean? But, you know, I think that, you know, that speaks to your question a little bit. I think that, you know, that comes down to fear sometimes. Ivan H. wrote into us. Hey, Ivan. And said, what happened to Klasky, Klasky Chupo? They made some of the great Nick shows ever, including Rugrats, Ah, Real Monsters, Rocket Power, and Wild Thornberries. Then went from making classics to crickets. What happened? They're still around. They're still going. They're working on a... What are they working on right now? They're, there's a revival. There's a revival coming, apparently. Rugrats is returning. I don't know if you guys heard about that. Supposedly. With, you know, Arlene Klasky, Gabork Chupo, and what's his name? Jermaine. Uh, what's his first name? I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his first name right now. But supposedly that, you know, supposedly that's going on. And what else? I just heard an, an interview with Arlene Chupo. Arlene Klasky, sorry. And she was talking about a little bit. Oh, you know what else it is, Kyle? They have Paramount greenlit a live action C- CG hybrid feature film a rugrats sort of a hybrid live action cg rugrats feature and it's slated for a january 2021 release so they're still doing some stuff very interesting yeah very with their biggest property you know not surprisingly yeah it's cross-generational it's interesting because it's not it's interesting that it's it ran for so long but it, it for me it's interesting that it came out when i was let's see in like second grade or going into second grade okay. and it ended when i was a sophomore in college you know, in that right. run, which right, is pretty exactly. interesting. That's a long time. And, you know, you have to remember, too, Kyle, did you know Rugrats has a, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? No. They have a star. And Steven Spielberg is a big champion of the show as well. Always spoke very highly of Rugrats. Steven Spielberg, Spielberg was like a Rugrats fan. 
So those are two, you know, interesting anecdotes about Klasky Chupo. I think it would be really hard. I knew a guy, Chris, who I went to school with who worked at Klasky Chupo. Very talented dude. Later went on to work for Nickelodeon proper, I think, on things like Invader Zim. I think I was telling you about him the other day, Kyle. But, yeah, I think it would be, you know, Klasky Chupo is, uh, they seem to be in it for the long haul. But they probably had some lean years, you know, as well, granted. The next up for me that I want to talk about. Sure. And I think this makes sense sequentially is, is Rocco's Modern Life. Okay. Rocco's Modern Life ran from 93 to 96, four seasons, 52 episodes. Yep. And I really, really dug this show. I thought the show was super, super good. I really, really cared a lot about the show and like went out of my way to watch it when I was younger. And a little disappointing because it really has a pretty short run, even by Nicktoon standards. In fact, it's the shortest run, I think, or ties. I know it ties our real monsters as the shortest running, you know, core 90s Nicktoon. Yeah. And I always thought that that was really sad because I always thought it was so funny and so strange. You were talking about strange with Rugrats and how they how they described it internally. I found Rocco authentically strange as well, I guess, for different reasons. It was. It definitely was. But how did you feel about this show about our Australian wallaby friend? I really, really liked Rocco's very, very much. I thought that I always got the sense a little bit that it was a little shortchanged because I felt like it was in Ren and Stimpy's shadow a little bit. I think Joe Murray had a very, I think Joe Murray was a very, first of all, he was a, he was a visionary and is a visionary and he went on to do other things. He went on to do Camp Lazlo for Cartoon Network. He's a very prolific children's book illustrator. He, but I think Joe Murray's vision was inherently just more adult, very similar to John Kay. John Kay and Joe Murray, as far as I know, had very little to do with each other. But I think Rocco was always in Ren and Stimpy's shadow a little bit, but I always liked the cartoon very much. I thought it was very appealing there was a lot of similar things going on in Rocco that were going on in Ren and Stimpy as far as the innuendo and the adult-oriented stuff and the subvert, more subversive stuff, which I thought was a lot of fun, actually. They, they got away with a lot on the show, actually. I thought, And I thought it was a very cute premise. You know, you had sort of an immigrant wallaby character in Rocco and sort of his adventures and misadventures, you know, in a new place, you know, being in the United States now and... You know, I thought that was really, I thought that was really kind of a neat, you know, what was now supposed to be the U.S. And I thought that was kind of a neat little premise. And I thought the characters were really colorful. I thought it was cartoony. I thought it was appealing. It, You know, looking back on it, it sort of dates itself a little bit as a 90s thing. You have that logo. It all seems very 90s. It almost kind of resonates similar to like, like a sitcom, like a 90s sitcom. It sort of has that, like a Saved by the Bell. No, thing. absolutely. I understand has that exactly, look yeah. and feel, you know, which is which really makes it actually nostalgic. And I think I wanted to find out a lot more about Joe Murray because I don't know too much about him. I, I enjoy a lot of his illustrated kids books. We have a few of them that I've read to my kids over the years. I I love when, you know, people do seminal things like Joe Murray did Rocco and then could go on to a new place and do seminal things, at, you know, places like Cartoon Network for things like Camp Laszlo. I think Joe Murray is a visionary. I think he's sort of, he's got a sort of creative director slash showrunner sort of ability. I think he's that much of a visionary. But I think from what I'm understanding, the more I read about the Rocco era, I think Joe Murray was really having a lot of personal problems. I don't know if you read about a lot of this stuff, but before... Right before production kicked in for the first season, apparently for the first season of Rocco, Joe Murray's first wife killed herself. 
And I think it just sent everything on like a downward spiral. And I think what ended up happening was what I envision happened was Joe Murray was sort of half in it and half out, out it. You know, I think he's from Northern California. I think he's from, I think he's from up, you know, up in the San Francisco area, the Bay area somewhere. He had to come down to SoCal to work on the show. I think, you know, his life was obviously embroiled in tragedy at that point. If, if everything I'm reading is true. I think it was a very difficult time for him. Steven Hillenberg, who went on to create SpongeBob, actually famously took over running the show for him. Joe Murray left. I think he tried to leave after the second season. They got him to hang on until after the third season. And then Steven Hillenberg was directing the show. And actually, Joe Murray sort of left it in his hands for the entire fourth season. And actually championed for the show, apparently, to go on under Hillenburg. And just wanted, you know, just wanted to kind of move on and said, you guys just should keep doing the show. Games Animation, who was the, who was, that was the early inception of Nickelodeon's Burbank Animation Studio, then called Games, was handling the animation for, largely handling the animation for Rocco. And he handed the show off to Steven Hillenburg and made still Steven Hillenburg the creative director of the show. Of course, Steven Hillenburg famously would create SpongeBob a little later on but i thought that was really interesting and you could kind of see i always got it's funny because the more i learn about rocco and i could be off but i don't think i am i could always see in rocco this underlying genius that was just like almost there but not quite and i think that's because you know largely the guy you know the visionary who created it was really kind of only half attached to it or was kind of you know just kind of giving it his best shot, but he was just, it was just too crazy. It was just too crazy of a time. You know, I don't know if, you know, it was just a kind of bad time. It's just a case of bad timing. It seemed like yeah, the more I learn about it. Yeah. Awful timing. But I, you know, I love Joe Murray and I love his vision. And he says a really funny thing when the show first aired his father, because again, Rocco only second, only to Ren and Stimpy, you know, asking ourselves the question, like, is this a kid? Sh- is this a kid show? You know what I mean? Type of thing. I think without Ren and Stimpy, it would Rocco would even hit harder, you know, but his father famously said to, to him when it, when he first saw Rocco, he said, is this supposed to be for kids? <laughs> you know, like in a deadpan way, like, is this show supposed to be for kids? And, you know, Joe Murray just rolled his eyes like, oh shit, you know, of course my dad's going to say that, but very distinctive style, very silly, famously told, apparently told Nickelodeon, like, look, when they were courting him to do the show, was like, I don't like writing for kids. And they were like, well, write it for adults. Like that, that's how much of a, that's how much of a stretch Nickelodeon was taking on just trying to court new, you know, creative talent, you know, and that says a lot, you know, I think they were half out of their minds. Maybe there was some kind of drug fuel thing going on right now, but to, for somebody to say that, and then with that much money on the line, especially, and for an executive to turn around and say that in return is like, that speaks to what was going on during this period. You know, it's pretty it's pretty cool, man. It's yeah, like an animator's dream come true. Very interesting. Next up on my list, okay. I have Hey Arnold from 1996 to 2001. Plus, I think it went a little further than that with some movies, but there's two films. But five seasons, 100 episodes about a fourth grader named Arnold. Right. I always liked the show, too. I, I You liked it as a kid. Yeah, I remember when it came out when I was in private school and middle school, and I remember enjoying it. I remember tuning into it, and I remember liking it a lot, and, and I've watched it many times since. I think it's really probably, in looking at my list, the really the last, there was only four Nicktoons that I really cared about, and this was the last one. Okay, that's your fourth. I would say so, you know, okay. along with Ren, Doug, 
and Rocco, I would say that this is the fourth one. And certainly the last one, like the least one for me. But I liked it a lot. What did you think of Hey Arnold? I, li- I, I liked Hey Arnold back then. I was already familiar with Craig Bartlett. Now, Craig Bartlett, who created Arnold, a lot of us knew, a lot of the older people to, knew, a lot of people my age would remember him this way. Kyle, I don't know if you remember, on Pee-wee's Playhouse, there was the stop-motion Penny cartoons. Do you remember Penny? Mm-hmm. Yes. Craig Bartlett created Penny. And that was the first time I saw Craig Bartlett's work. And if you look at the Penny cartoons and you look at Hey Arnold, you could see the same hand in there. It looks like his style. I like Craig Bartlett very much. I thought, you know, he was a guy who was around for a long time. He cut his teeth at Will Vinton's studio up in Portland. Will Vinton being the famous stop motion animator. And Craig worked with him up there on things like the California Raisins and a lot of things that Will Vinton was famous for, a lot of commercial stuff that Will Vinton was famous for. And Craig Bartlett was actually the story editor at Klasky's on Rugrats. So he was already kind of in the Nick animation fold. He was already a professional. He was already a professional in the animation industry. Longtime professional. Famously, the brother-in-law of Matt Groening. Um, he's married Very to Matt Groening, Lisa Groening, Matt Groening's sister. And still married to her, as far as I know. And yeah, Hey Arnold, from big, big span, five seasons, 100 episodes, 96 through 2004, right? Iconic. I always think of Hey Arnold as an iconic and emblematic as, you know, a Nick in the 90s, one of the faces of Nick in the 90s. And I like, you know, Arnold started out as, you know, they were stop motion shorts that Bartlett did for kind of like the indie festival circuit. He did, I think, three different Arnold shorts. A lot of people think Arnold started on the Penny cartoons, but Craig Bartlett said it, even if there was a character in there that made a look, maybe looked like Arnold, it wasn't Arnold. Arnold started in these shorts. It was Arnold escapes from church, the Arnold waltz and Arnold rides his chair. And those were three sort of indie shorts, stop motion shorts that Bartlett put out just into the festival, the artsy fartsy festival circuit. And, you know, again, kind of striking that Nickelodeon would take a shot. This wouldn't happen today. If it was a pre-existing IP, Nickelodeon would be way too worried that that already existed and would never turn it into a cartoon series. So, again, you know, it's very speaks very much to the time that Nickelodeon would take a pre-existing thing, even if it was just an indie film, you know, and make, you know, take a chance on stretching and taking a shot on making it into an animated series. I always thought Arnold was a lot of fun supposedly very, very inspired by the Peanuts. You know, Bartlett was very, very inspired by Peanuts cartoons. And, you know, looking back on Arnold, it's funny because it's one of those things where you can see, I know Bartlett was very inspired by, you know, Sparky Schultz and he was very inspired by Charlie Brown and the Peanuts, but you could see there's a, there's a lot of melancholy in Hey Arnold. You know, there's sort of that ambivalence between the cartoonish joy and the childhood wonder and sort of that, you know, sort of melancholy, woe is me type. It's hard to be a kid. And, you know, Bartlett talks about that. He he says like he, he wanted to what he wanted to do was he wanted with Hey Arnold and he hoped it was always successful. That was that he wanted to portray how it really felt to be like a nine, 10 year old, a fourth grader. In that, you know, that kids are kind of powerless. They're always told what to do. They have no money. You know, they don't have a lot of freedom. They don't have their own resources to make things happen. They go to school all day. They come home and they do homework. Sort of like they're dealing with bullies and peers and peer pressure and all this stuff at school and teachers. And some of them are mean. And, you know, 
sort of taking away that resonance and that sheen of like why you know it's so great to be a kid well it's not always great to be a kid and this is what i want to show and sometimes it is great to be a kid and sometimes we have awesome friends but we're dealing with all the shit at school so he wanted to show a lot of that and he always helped hope that was what he was showing with hey arnold and that was you know that always really that always really spoke to me and he talks about a writer famously saying once in an article that hey arnold was oftentimes seemed to be themed around disappointment and Bartlett was always tickled by that because he agreed. You know, that's really what his show is about. And I thought that was that was kind of fun. You know, it was it was kind of deeper than just a cartoon. Right, right. You know, and I think Hey Arnold is pretty cool. Well, I do too. What I liked about it the most was its urban setting. Like it was different yes. in a great, it was really different than all the other Nickelodeon offerings before that or really even after that because it was decidedly urban. Ren and Stimpy was suburban. Doug's suburban. Rugrats is suburban. Rocco suburban. And so. you know what? He says, Barlett says, Kyle, it's really cool that you picked that up. And he, he, he'd probably be really happy to hear that because that was one of the main things. He thought that it was like not only in cartoons and animation, which was certainly the case, but just in sitcoms and TV fare in general, it would always seem like this sort of generic representation of the suburbs to the point where it was almost like the setting almost became thoughtless. So not only did he want to set it in an urban setting, he wanted to set it in sort of an unappealing urban setting where it was like this forgotten part of the city was under the bridge. It was seemingly this unimportant area where like the lesson because Arnold was in a boarding house with his grandparents. Right. So it's he wanted to set it in sort of a place that was not only thoughtful, but not, you know, not extravagant, not, you know, this place that was like a great, you know, necessarily appealing, but more realistic. You know, and I, th- I think that's that was really thoughtful. I like how much thought I, I like Craig Bartlett a lot. I think he's really cool. Football head. Football head. <laughs> Let's talk about Ah Real Monsters. Okay. 1994 to 1997, four seasons, 52 episodes. This is another Klasky show. Yep. This is a show I know almost nothing about because I couldn't stand watching it. It was just it was it was that art style taken to an even weirder degree. And I remember very clearly seeing it for the first time when we lived in Maine. Sure. And I remember watching it and just being like, I don't know. And it's not going to do it for me. And I never tuned into that show. Like, even, in. even, dude, if it was on, I wouldn't watch it. Like, I would just change the show. Yeah, because 94, you were 10, 9, 10 years old. Right. 94, 97. Four yeah, seasons. I have it as 94 to 97. Four seasons, 52 episodes. Right. So, you know, the sort of the that's right in the range of what a real, you know, a, a, a normal series would do. Successful, but not overly successful like a Rugrats. Yeah, really interesting. You know, I never knew too much about this show. It was always on my periphery. You know, you could look at it, especially an animation person could look at it within two seconds. It's like, name that tune. That's a classy Chupo show. Obviously, you look at it for two seconds, you know it. I thought it always looked really interesting. I liked, I always, even though I never really watched it, I might have caught it in passing with, you know, channel flipping and so forth. But I never really sat down to watch it and engage with it. But I always sort of admired it from afar because it was a show about monsters and I thought that was different. It was like, it wasn't an anthropomorphic animal. It wasn't kids. It wasn't, you know, madcap cartoon characters. It wasn't based on Looney Tunes. It wasn't based on Charlie Brown. It was something different, which I thought was always really cool. But what I didn't know about it was that it was actually about a school of monsters who were learning how to frighten humans. And apparently there's been a lot of controversy you know what I'm going to say? Pixar with Monsters, Inc. Oh, interesting. Which I never, because I never knew about what the show was about. Yeah, I actually did know that the show was about that. So that's, I do remember that. And that's funny. I never made that connection. Which is, you know, 
I always thought that was so brilliant that Monsters Inc. was about that because it seems like a very Pixar-esque thing. It's like a simple idea, but how brilliant. And, you you know, obviously a, a wonderful vehicle for an animated feature. But, you know, this came way before Monsters Inc., 1994. So this is I wonder the how they got away with that one. So, you know, a lot of a lot of accusations, a lot of controversy. Any from Klasky? Not that I could not that I saw. I don't know if they'd be foolish enough to engage Pixar. Yeah, that's true. But that's pretty infuriating though if that was. But there's a lot of accusation of Pixar stealing the premise. And you know, I wonder what it was like to be Arlene Klasky and Gabor Chupo at that time, knowing that Monster and the success of Monsters Inc. And to me, Monsters Inc. was one of the most brilliant, you know, one of the most brilliant Pixar films. And you know, you know, sequel, you know, obviously successful enough to have spawn sequels, and you know, God, million, billions and trillions of dollars worth of merchandise, like anything Disney Pixar. So, I've always thought that was very, very uh, interesting, Kyle. You know, and I mean, the show is about three young monsters who go to school. I think it's located under a city dump. It's supposed to take place in New York, as far as I know, and where they learn to frighten humans, you know. And apparently it's been said that that dump is supposed to be Fresh Kills landfill, which I think is in Staten Island, right? Yes. Which is actually a little creepy because that is the landfill where a lot of the 9-11 rubble was taken to to be looked through. And sorted through for remains and so on and so forth and clues and everything like that. So that was a little creepy to me. But, you know, they didn't, you know, this came way before 9-11. This came, this ended four years before 9-11 happened. So, but, you know, one of those things. And, you know, I read about the art director, Igor. Oh, God, I'm going to mess up his last name. Kovailov? Kovailov? But really interesting because I know about him and I know about his work. And I know about his sort of, I think he went on to be the creative director at Klasky and really beautiful work. He always did. He always entered a short film into certain film festivals every year that were, you know, not related to what he was doing professionally. Gorgeous stuff. Really, really, you know, very much in the spirit of Russian animators, just really beautifully skilled stuff. You know, you know, there's traditions of really being, you know, very talented Russian animators that goes back a really long time. And he's he's one of them. And supposedly the show was inspired, highly inspired by the 1968 film Beatles film, The Yellow Submarine animated film. And you could see it. You could completely see it, you know has the one character sort of holding his eyes in his hands and stuff like that. You know, one of those things that I always appreciated being a little creepy and a little bit, maybe a little too, you know, what you would, wouldn't expect kids to engage with, but apparently it was pretty successful. You know, and one of those things where, again, with Klasky Chupo's content, you kind of got to give the kids credit. You know, there's, there's a certain open-mindedness with kids that they were able to accept something that, you know, perp not only looked off-putting, but was purposely looked odd. It was designed to look odd. That's what their this studio's whole mantra was creatively. So, what about 1997 to 2001, Angry Beavers? Okay, this show ran for four seasons, 62 episodes. I remember this when it first aired because I think I was in eighth grade. Okay, and uh, this was the kind of the show where I started to tune out a little bit with Nicktoons. Okay. I don't think it was a bad show. I actually remember it being kind of funny, but uh, I I never really engaged with this show. Cat Dog, which we'll talk about next, is a show I didn't engage with at all. That was when I was out. But this was kind of like my exit. This was the beginning of my exit, one foot out. But I remember really thinking the Beavers themselves were really aesthetically pleasing. I thought they were funny looking. They're cute. And so I I like the art style. And it, it felt coherent with the Nicktoon style. It looked, you know, from from my 
I guess, untrained eye, it looked like it was in the same universe as like Hey Arnold to me. Like, yeah, that's kind of a similar art style. I agree. I, I would put Cat Dog in that same. Yeah, definitely. Too. I always kind of put I especially always put those three, especially Cat Dog and Angry Beavers in the same sort of category. Very similar, separate creators, but very similar aesthetic. Yeah, created by Angry Beavers, created by um, Mitch Mitchell Shower. Really, you know, seems very emblematic. Angry Beavers always seems very emblematic of the time period for me. One of the one, you know, I should say too, a big introduction for me, for a lot of the Nicktoons, you know, on a, you know, on a beyond a surface level was when I, one of my jobs, when I returned to New York from Connecticut, my second job ever, we were handling, we basically handled all the creative for Nick.com. The internet being very big at that point, because this was after CD, the advent of CD-ROMs were sort of going away for kids, but it was before when .com was still growing and it was before smartphones and apps. So kids, you know, a lot of gaming for kids, they were going to the .coms, Nick.com, CartoonNetwork.com, and they were playing the games. They were watching the cartoons on the networks and then they were going online and playing the games. And it was heavily advertised on the networks, you know, on air on Nick and on Cartoon Network and on Disney to go and play the game. So we handled all the creative for Nick.com for all the shows. So we did all the games, all the activities for SpongeBob, CatDog, Angry Beavers, Hey Arnold, you know, Dora, you know, all the Nick to, you know, all the Nick Jr. content like Dora, Oswald at that time, Oswald the Octopus. So we, I was very much involved with these shows on a creative level because we were drawing all this stuff. Anything that wasn't televised, we were working on in the studio for the games and for the activities and for all the Nick.com content, you know, content. So I got to see all the style guides for these things, all the, you know, all the character Bibles, everything. I got to see all these things firsthand, which is kind of cool as an outsider because we didn't work. We worked for Nickelodeon, but we didn't work at Nickelodeon, which was really neat. And Angry Beavers was one of them. And I always appreciated it. You know, just a very simple series, very simple formula, very simple animated series about two brothers, Daggett and Norbert, that were beavers and they were bachelors and they lived out, you know, they moved out on their own. They lived out on their own as their various you know, conundrums and predicaments and adventures and misadventures. Weren't there human yeah. characters in it, like a, a lumberjack or something? Or is that you know a, what? I don't remember there being. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just. There was a tree up. stump character that they were friends with, I believe. But maybe that's there were I'm other getting... characters. There right, were other right. characters, but it mostly revolved around Dag and Norb. And they, you know, there were two. You know, it was like an odd couple type of formula. You know, where it was. You know, Dag was sort of the energetic one that you know he was the. I think he was the. Um, he was the younger brother by four minutes and he was kind of easily manipulated and quick to anger and quick to scare. And, you know, Norbert was kind of the older brother by four minutes. And he was the one I think he was the one who sort of talked with that William Shatner esque like speech inflection. And he was more relaxed and lazy and mellow and would kind of dupe his brother into doing all the work for him. And you know, a lover of the arts and always talk, spoke with an air, you know what I mean? That type of thing it was just an odd couple type formula. Very simple. What I love about Angry Beavers that I didn't know is that Mitch Shower, sort of a character. I liked um, reading and listening to different interviews with him because I didn't know too much about him as a creator. He basically was asked to create some shows. And when he thought about angry animals, it made him laugh. 
So he went out and purposely thought of, oh, shoot, what animal would purposely be the least angry? You know, that being beavers, they seem so docile and just like minding their own business. And, you know, so he thought of doing angry beavers just because he thought that would be like a sort of an opposite type of thing. And, you know, what he says is, too, he had a couple. Of, now, I don't know if you would know this, but I found out about a couple of facts about beavers that I didn't know through listening through an interview with Mitch Mitchell Shower. And he says two things. And I don't know if I'm just being gullible and he wasn't serious, but he said two facts about beavers I didn't know. One was that the biggest danger to beavers in the wild are falling trees. That's the biggest thing. It's not, a, it's not a predator. It's not humans. It's actually the trees could and do often fall on beavers. Well, because they're cutting them down, right? I would assume so. Right. I would assume so. And he said the other thing is, now, I don't know if this is true. Hopefully, it is a beaver, out, a beaver expert out there. Go ahead. Make your beaver jokes. Yeah, all right. I'll give you five seconds. <laughs> All right. Make, make your beaver jokes, but... You got your official beaver inspector you your, uh, <laughs> We started with boxes. Now we're going to talk about beavers. It's fine. But real beavers need to gnaw on wood continuously in order to keep their infinitely growing teeth in check, or else there's a danger that their teeth could grow up into their brains and kill them. Do you think that's a real thing? No. It sounds dubious to me. Why would it, Why would the teeth grow upwards? Yeah, that but maybe it's true. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I, I may, well, maybe it is. Why else would they eat all this wood? Beavers are interesting, though. Do, beavers do cut down trees, right? Or do they just drag felled trees? No, I think and they, make their dams. I think they cut them down, mm. right? Because if they had to find down right. trees all day, God, then they'd, they'd, yeah, they'd be yeah. dragging them for miles away. Right, it's beavers, <laughs> right? Putting in a lot of work. The last show I have on my list, and we can okay. talk about whatever you want after this, of course. Right is cat dog this ran from 1998 to 2005 four seasons 68 episodes this show didn't appeal to me at all i thought it was strange looking and this is when i tapped out of nicktoons now did so, you watch i, I mean i watched a little bit in preparation for this but right, I didn't, right but i never watched it at the time okay and yeah i see the similarity between the latter nicktoons 90 shows for sure in that aesthetic sure it's funny that you described the last one as the odd couple though because i i would describe this show as seemingly odd couple-ish as well yeah i could see that too i mean cat dog you know what the funniest thing about cat dog that i read kyle well first of all it's interesting because i always think about cat dog and angry beavers and to a lesser extent hey arnold not so much hey arnold anymore i think i have a sort of a newfound appreciation for hey arnold especially after reading everything that craig bartlett says and also craig bartlett's sort of legacy in animation just in general but i always think of cat dog and angry beavers as having this for some reason just having this sort of watered down it, they almost seem a little bit and i'm not trying to put them down but they almost seem a little bit watered down. They almost seem like they're somewhere in between, you know, Cat Dog and Angry Beaver specifically seem somewhere in between like a Hey Arnold and a Ren and Stimpy. Like they're either here nor there. Like they're silly and madcap, but not enough to be super cartoony and wacky, but not, you know, but also not sort of grounded in reality enough to be a Doug or to be super thoughtful or to have super well-rounded characters and sort of fleshed out characters sort of seemed like a little bit not enough of one thing and not enough of the other thing. I don't know if I'm explaining myself really well, but I always put myself, I always put Cat Dog and Angry Beavers in that. Like it could have went more in this direction or it could have went more in this direction and it would have been stronger. Like it didn't seem like a cohesive enough vision. It seemed almost a little bit like it didn't know what it wanted to be. So it tried to be everything. 
or tried to be too much. It tried to be too. It tried to be silly, but it wasn't silly enough. It tried to have really fleshed out characters, but they really weren't that three dimensional. You know what I mean? It didn't. They both seemed a little weak. Right is what I'm trying to say. Understood. Cat Dog, created by Peter Hannon. I think it officially pre- premiered in 98. Actually went four seasons, seven years in total. Might have had a lapse in there somewhere, 68 episodes. Might have had a, a little bit of downtime in there as they thought about renewing it or whatever. I'm not sure. But yeah, again, just try, sort of seemed half-assed to me and lacking in that same, and lacking in a really cohesive John K-esque or even Craig Bartlett-esque vision. You know, it doesn't seem that you really be you know, a slave to any kind of authentic vision. It seems more like it's kind of floating out there in space. But what I what I love about this series most in retrospect, I always thought it was kind of a cool idea. You know, sort of this cat fused to a dog, sort of the Siamese twin thing where you have a cat, you have a dog, they're actually polar opposites, but they have to live together and, you know, hilarity ensues. Simple idea, but it could be really cool. But you know, and of course, cat and dog, very different personalities. Cat, and, you know, but very predictable. You know, cat is exactly what you think he's going to be. He's a little more, he's a little more quick to anger. He doesn't have any patience for anything. He suffers no fools. He's more sophisticated. He, he has more sophisticated tastes. He just wants to do, you know, he just wants to be, you know, he just wants to rest. He just wants to get food he just wants to chill whatever it is the dog is much more energetic and puppy like and let's go and you know a little more stupid you know there's nothing there's nothing there's you know you're not writing you know anything that's going to win you know the nobel peace peace prize here it's just it's not rocket science right. it just is what it is but what i love is all this revisionist history that i'm reading now how disgusting cat dog is and it's so gross that you have this dog fused to a cat and all these articles I'm reading. And what it's like, what? Like, no, cut the shit. It's a cartoon. You know, sometimes you just have to suspend disbelief and let, you know, let a cartoon be a cartoon and not overthink. It's like, well, that's so mean. How did they take a shit? Like, what? It's a cartoon. Nobody thought that when the, even when the, even this cartoon is not that old. I think it was canceled in 2005. Nobody was even thinking that in 2005. No, you know, I don't recall. Ever you had a that. cultured, sophisticated cat fused to like this naive, happy-go-lucky, energetic dog and hilarity ensued. That was it. It wasn't like, how mean is it that these, the, it's sort of cruel. That's not funny. Like I read at least four articles like that. Yeah, that's, uh, well, that's today for you. That's, uh, it's some, that's some not shit. 2005. It's some shit. Now, I don't have any more on my list, but okay. there are other cartoons to choose from. I know most notably SpongeBob. We could sure. talk about, but SpongeBob starts in the 90s. Yeah, it's still 99. on. So I don't really I'm not going to count that. We have a question about it. I, I, you can talk about it if you want, but I don't consider that a 90s Nicktoon at all. Well, you know what I want? What, what I would ask with SpongeBob, Kyle? I would like to do a SpongeBob episode. Yeah, I think that's perfectly Especially fine. Especially because Steven Hillenberg recently passed. And, you know, tragically passed. He was very sick. It was a secret for a while. A visionary and a very important cartoon. A very, very successful long-running cartoon. It's one of the longest-running cartoons in history in SpongeBob. But it's not over yet. Someday, when SpongeBob ends, we'll certainly put it on the docket for, you know, for Colin and I to talk about. But it officially aired in July of 1999. So it really would have just made the cut. You know, and, you know, everybody knows how big SpongeBob is. You know, in 2018, the season, the series started airing season 12, which is insane. It is insane, although it's not that insane, right? Because 
The Simpsons has had every year has had a new season, and so has South Park since 1998. That's true. But those two things are, are anomalies. Right. You know, along with SpongeBob. You know, along with SpongeBob. And, well, I was oh, shocked that SpongeBob. I mean, I remember talking to you about SpongeBob several times ago that we got back together or got back together, got together, <laughs> got back together to record the show, I guess I should say. When we, we broke we, up. We, we broke up when we got back we together. We broke up at the end of every way. But when we reconvened, I remember saying to you like, oh, I thought SpongeBob. I remember predicting like, oh, SpongeBob's like 99 to 2003 or something like that. Right. right. 2004. I always thought it was just people just watched it still. I didn't know that it was like a phenomenon oh, still like, to this day. And I had still no doing idea. new episodes. Yeah, I had no idea. I thought that they stopped. I literally thought early on when I was in college, they stopped making new SpongeBob episodes. It's just, and it might have. No idea. And I don't know. I don't know beat by beat, month by month over the whole run history, but they might have had. There was certainly a little bit of downtime, even with six months here and there. Well, yeah, there's 20 years and only nine seasons. So but there this series, man. You know, I mean, you could chalk it up to a lot of things. You could talk it up to chalk it up to Steven Hillenberg and his vision. You could talk chalk it up to Tom Kenny, who does the voice of SpongeBob, who is brilliant. You could you could chalk it up to all the other brilliant voice acting in the show. You could chalk it up to the amazing characters in the show. Yeah, SpongeBob's goofy as hell. I love SpongeBob. Oh, love, it's so silly. Yeah, I love it's just so the, funny. I love how memeable, like how it's a meme online and stuff oh too. Like God. it's just a series of memes. It absolutely it. is. It's one so of the funny. most memeable things, really. Yeah, just because people just zoom in on the various characters, like looking <laughs> surprised or disgusted, like, like the big little fish. That reminds me, by the way, speaking of fish, I did forget to say that I got to give a shout out to Rocco's Mr. Big Head, who's like one of the great. Oh, absolutely. Characters that character. Rocco's neighbor fucking rules and his wife Bev yeah they're right great. who's actually really nice right his right. wife right really great characters great but, characters but yeah Spongebob it's funny like I like Spongebob I think it's cool I think it's cute but I I just had no idea like until you know the last year that. yeah well you you wouldn't I mean my my son I have an eight-year-old who's loved Spongebob since he was little so and he it's still one of his favorite things he's a really big cartoon buff Graydon but he loves SpongeBob is a mainstay. Even though all the things that come and go through the Disney's and the Cartoon Networks and the you know the Nickelodeons and everything, SpongeBob is you know on the top of his list always. He loves it. He just thinks it's the funniest thing. And you know, I just want to say R.I.P. to Steven Hillenburg. The show's had a lot of talent work. You know, knowing as an animator and knowing about you know TV animation talent and the people involved in the show, they've had it's a who's who of talent. You know, every, everyone from Aaron Springer to, you know, just everybody who's written on the show and, and storyboarded on the show. And it's just an amazing crew, you know, through the years. And, you know, the other exciting thing that I learned, Kyle, which I didn't know, that on February 14th, just they just announced it. They just, Nickelodeon just announced that there's going to be a SpongeBob spinoff series. But they're not saying what it is yet, as far as I know. It's in development. Which is very exciting to sort of conjecture what can the spinoff be? What character could it center around? Please be Plankton. He's my favorite character ever. It's an amazing cartoon. name, too. Love that freaking character, man. He's hilarious. Married to a robot. Bad guy married to a robot. He's like this little whatever he... What is he supposed to be? Like an amoeba, a guess, sea yeah. cucumber, whatever he is? Plankton. And he's supposed to be... Maybe he's Plankton. And he's supposed to be married. He's married to a robot. I mean, unbelievable. But yeah, SpongeBob. I mean, we, it's you know we could do an entire show on SpongeBob. Yeah, it's very, not. It's still are. We cannot easily. do. We cannot really. It, can't based do on the it rules yet. of knockback, we really can't do. Which is good because we have to do a lot of biggies. So the fact that we don't have to do SpongeBob yet is pretty good. I think that's great. Also for Attack on Titan, that was great. By the way, the audience voted for us to do South Park. We talked about this oh, a, yeah. while, a little while on another episode, but. I had to throw the kibosh on that after the fact because I'm like, what am I thinking? First of all, we're going to have to do multiple episodes of South Park probably. And the show is still on. And that show's probably not going to end. That show could potentially not end for decades. So who oh, the hell? Absolutely. Even after, you know, 
Trey Parker and Matt Stone are done, that show might continue. So, you know, because it's just so big for it's South huge. for uh, for Comedy Central. It's huge, dude. And I love the way they. I, I'd really love to do a, an episode on that though when the time comes, just to talk about their production schedule and how fucking zany it is. Yeah. You know how incredible it is that. Something can happen on a Monday, and then the next Wednesday, an episode is about uh, that turnaround on the air about it. And they've only missed one of the like what one they've only missed one deadline once. That's insane. When I when we learned about that, you know, because they I don't know if they still do, but they do the show in Maya, which is you know 3D CG software. As far as I know, they they may not anymore. But as far as I know, they did. Yeah, the, the paper mache style they were doing a little too cumbersome, which is unbelievable <laughs> that they do it that quick because it's so topical. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I they. Mean, yeah. Because there's isn't there a documentary about it or something? There where is. They, they show like how one of the shows was. There made? is. There's at least one, which is really, which is really kind of cool. But yeah, eventually, you know, South Park is is unavoidable. If, when we're still doing knockback, when South Park ends, we got to do it. You know. No, absolutely. No, I mean for sure. I love that show. I'm. I, and the, what's exciting about it to me is I've seen probably ten percent of the episodes. Maybe you know. It's maybe a, the body t- of work is enormous. Because dude, and it's so funny because they're on. It's on Hulu, I think. And every time I like just randomly put an episode on, I'm like, all right, I'll go to like season twelve, episode six. No idea like what the context of this is. Right, right. And it's every one of them is great. Like every episode I put on, I'm like, this is awesome. This show is so funny. I love Cartman. It's- I absolutely adore it never fails to be funny oh carmen is one of the best characters on tv ever period not even talking about animation he's He's unbelievable he's awesome he's the best you can't not it's impossible not to like south park i agree and you know what i like about south park too and i i know that you know parker and stone are they've like you know kind of showed some democratic leanings and some republican leanings and stuff those guys are definitely conservatives and those guys are like definitely taking the piss See, mostly much out about to me south park is almost always making fun of liberals like <laughs> right like even the pc did you see the pc police season no where our pc i'm sorry pc principal season where the principal no. is pc principal and it's all about political correctness at their school or whatever <laughs> dude it's so funny and like i just look and they've definitely made fun of the right wing before i'm not saying that Especially in the 90s and early 2000s with the religion and all that kind of stuff. Sure, and, sure, sure. But I look at that show and I'm like, this uh, this kind of is not liberal humor at all. From from my perspective, right, this right. seems really conser- like conservative or libertarian humor. I, w- I wonder. It's I super w- inappropriate. It, it, it doesn't pull any punches. It does not give a fuck who it offends. Right. That's not really liberal. Right, know? right, right. And That's good comedy. And, and doing a whole season on political correctness, which they did, is not... A liberal thing right 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 so exactly. i really think you know what's really interesting to me though above and beyond that in their process and that quick turnaround that eight day or seven day turnaround they do yeah it's not that they can do it because with enough money you can do anything yeah. like that it's really probably not that complicated if you have enough money to make a 22 you know and i'm sure it's, i'm sure it is it. i don't want to say it's not that complicated with enough money you can make a 22 minute show every week I don't see how that they literally make five soap operas in a week. Right, right, right. You know, I think you can you can do it. No, I know what you mean. But what's interesting about it is having come from the corporate world and knowing how crazy the corporate world is with sign offs and revisions and stuff like that is that that show gets on the air. You know, yeah. like is that Comedy Central basically I, I presume that they really have no checks. Like, like they basically give the episode of them. Like, Here right. Is. I would assume at this point. Right. I would assume so. So that's what's more fascinating about it to me is like just hearing stories even about video games being made and light working with licensors and how awful that experience is and how much a lot of people for as much as working on Star Wars or a Marvel game or something sounds exciting. It's often awful for the people involved in it because they have to go through a whole new level of revision and a whole new level of like permission and shit Absolutely. to get anything done. Absolutely. Like every little tweak, you know, and. You would just assume that South Park would 
be impossible because of that. Right. But they get it done right. that quick on that. It's unbelievable. Like the lawyers have to clear it and all that. Like that. That's a pretty big lift. And, you know, that says a lot about, I guess, the trust Comedy Central has in them. But I also think more than that, it says a lot about the experience, the money that they bring in and the experience, obviously, that they have to just to do whatever they want. Having only missed one deadline. It's a it's you know. speaks volumes. And I don't think it was even their fault, if I remember correctly. I don't remember. I think exactly it was like some problem. Was. Right. With like something they were doing, like some technology or something. Yeah, I don't know. I know I, as far as I as far as I know, if it's still the same, the cl- the crew is pretty lean, too. It's not like there's a ton of people. You know, it's not like there's that many people. And I wonder how many people are still on board from the beginning or near the beginning. You know, because you think that would be a really good, a really fun gig and a really good gig. But I wonder how many people, because you, you think of the well-oiled machine factor, you know, like at this point, it's got to be, you know, you know, they hit the ground running. They know exactly what they got to do. But, you know, also you could just see even somebody who hasn't seen a lot in recent years and really looks, I really look forward to going in and just really tuning in and really dedicating myself to it because I love it. But even some, I, I, they challenge themselves. It's not like they always, they don't rely on convention. They'll challenge themselves. They'll try new things. They'll try new formulas. They do a musical, whatever it is. You know, there's new visual elements introduced into the, into the, into the batter, you know? So it's, it's really speaks volumes on how fast they could do it. It's really, it's, you know, it's authentically insane, actually. No, and, and I agree. And it's and the topicalness and the, and the songwriting and all that, the voice acting, which they do much of the voices. So that's what I love, too, is that they have to be pretty much omnipresent during production because they're not only helping to write the shows. I, I doubt they do any animation anymore or anything like that, but they have to be there to voice the characters. They sure. voice almost all of them. So Absolutely. That's really pretty crazy, too. Unbelievable. So, but anyway, we're getting a little off topic. Are there any other Nicktoons that you wanted to touch well, on? Well, you know what, Kyle? I'll just quickly mention. I think we we did a good job in mentioning the ones that are most essential. But as far as 90s goes, even if it's a little later, later in the 90s, and these are all different dates, but I would mention Oh Yeah Cartoons, which was sort of their creator-driven shorts, you know, Nickelodeon's first shorts program that followed Cartoon Network's What a Cartoon by a couple of years, I think. Rocket Power, Klasky Chupo's Rocket Power, Wild Thornberries, The Brothers Flub, and one who I thought you were surely going to mention is Nickelodeon's Kablam, which, do you remember Kablam? Vaguely. It's an animated anthology show. If you remember, it was it was all, an, it was um, sort of a, uh, a pastiche, if you will, of animated, different animated programming. And it was hosted by two anima- silly animated characters, two kids named Henry and June. Yes, 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 yes. Right? Yeah, of course. Yes. So this was one of my favorite. Oh, I favorite. remember this. Yes. This was one of my all-time favorite Nicktoons. Now, I was a little old for it, so I didn't catch it as much as I wanted to, but I always appreciated it. And again, always reminded me of MTV's Liquid Television. Is this where Stick Stickly came from and all Stick that? Like, the Stick Stickly was a, like the, the Popsicle Stick character. Yeah, you know what? I don't know if Stick Stickly was on it. I was going to talk about... Now, there was a bunch of shorts, especially that came in later seasons, but I was going to talk about the main four and five shorts that the show was comprised of when the show, you know, for the first couple of seasons. Now, Stick Stickly might have been a later thing. I'm not sure. We'll have to keep that in reserve to find out. But, you know, this was actually a show that was introduced for SNCC, which was Saturday Night Nick, that was a block of programming sort of geared towards preteens slash teens on Saturday nights that aired from 8 to 10. Yeah, it was all about it. 
that's where Are You Afraid of the Dark was on and Roundhouse right. and all those shows. Right. And supposedly, I didn't know this, but supposedly this was the only show that Nickelodeon created from scratch for that block of programming. Very silly and very funny. And again, hosted by Henry and June, two animated kid characters. If you guys don't know it, go check out the show. It's really, really fun. Really, really silly. And it's one of those shows that they get away with a lot. Like a lot more subversive stuff than, than that what would not necessarily bad in any way, but a lot more than you think they would get, could get away with in the 90s. You know, very, very, really a lot of fun and speaks to older an older audience, too. I could see, you know, preteens, 12 and up, even 11 and up really enjoying the show. You know, I loved it as a kid. I wish I could was able to catch it more. So Henry and June hosted the show, they sort of brought it in, introduced it, and then there were Henry and June segments throughout the show that was treated. And, you know, oftentimes Henry and June would have a, one problem for an entire show or one specific storyline that was sort of threaded out through their various skits throughout the show. And then there was another short that, comp- you know, was a episodic shorts that was part of the show called Sniz and Fondue, another 2D hand-drawn series there were two ferret characters, highly stylized, really cartoony. Sniz and Fondue were two ferrets that were roommates, and it was their various dilemmas and misadventures, and, you know, that was it. Action League Now, which, yes, of course, uh, you'll remember. Yes, of course. Which was a stop-motion <laughs> slash live-action hybrid. Brilliant. It was with action figures and stuff, right? With action figures. Right. Some stop-motion, but a lot of live-action. They did a, a technique that they called chuckamation, which where they would just throw things into the frame. So you would see an action figure or a prop flying into the frame and bouncing and landing. Or Wouldn't whatever. it always end with them getting destroyed or something like that? Or is that some, you know what I'm talking about? Where like the last shot would always be. I don't know if the last shot was always like God, that. I feel like I, maybe I'm making that up, but I don't think so. I feel like there was. I feel like it might have been that where like the last shot was always the action figures getting like obliterated. <laughs> now my my one of my teachers, one of my animation professors, I David Fain. I think he's the one. He's the one who created Chuckamation. He was an animator on the show. He let he left school. He that was, was one claim of, the, of claim to fame. Yeah, because he was an experimental animator. He wasn't a hand drawn guy. He wasn't one of these guys that could draw his ass off. But he was really really creative. He was always the one who did like the short for the festival. The animation festival was like paint on glass or sand on glass, something really artsy, a stop motion piece. And taught me a lot about storyboarding. He he's the one who taught that awesome storyboarding class where he talked a lot about Rugrats. But the Action League now was basically four heroes. And it was Stinky Diver, The Flesh, Thunder Girl, and Meltman. I remember this so right? well. And yeah, Meltman, because they would destroy that figure over and over again. I yeah, think. yeah, I think Meltman. What was Meltman? He was some sort of G.I. Was- Joe action figure. Maybe he was a Cobra Commander, or maybe that was Stinky Diver. They were modified toys. Right, right. I remember this The so Flesh well, was like a bodybuilder type toy look like a wrestler type figure and thunder girl was a like a doll she was much bigger that was the other thing they were like they were like disproportionate scale to each other like thunder girl was way bigger than the other ones so it was stinky diver a former navy commando with an attitude as bad as his odor the flesh he's super strong and super naked thunder girl she flies like thunder and melt man with the power to melt i remember this so well dude it's so good this is easily, I would even, for me now, and maybe it's sort of hindsight is twenty twenty, and because I've seen it the least, this is probably the best thing on the entire 90s Nicktoon slate. It's so fun. It's so inventive. 
It's super well written. It's actually laugh out loud hilarious. Now, I, you know, Ren and Stimpy holds a special place in my heart. Ren and Stimpy is brilliant, but I've seen it so much. I was so enjoying going in and just watching these shorts. And I should say, the fourth main short is a short. You might remember this too, Kyle. Another stop motion short. Um, stop motion armatures called Prometheus and Bob. Yes. Centered around a purple alien character, Prometheus, who's sort of this advanced alien being and Bob, who is a caveman and sort of the frustration of Prometheus trying to teach Bob about various right, things. Right. Yeah. I remember that. You know, it's so funny. This brings back catastrophe would always ensue. Right. And then the last one is, and the last one that we should talk about is, you know, the last main one. And again, as the seasons went on different, there were different shorts that took different spots and different, but these were the original five. Life with Loopy, which was another stop motion, sort of hybrid life and adventures of this character, Larry, and his imaginative little sister named Loopy, created by Stephen Holman. So that was the, you know, that those were, you know, that was Kablam. And Kablam was so cool, man, because it was such a fun it was such a fun experiment. It just really embod- to me it really embodied everything Nickelodeon was doing during this period of time. You know what I mean? It really it was really so experimental. It was so different. It was so unlike most anything we've seen before, and it wasn't just a one-off thing. It was actually, you know, they actually built entire blocks of program programming on this content. You know, that Snick was such a big thing to have like a block of programming you know, geared towards preteens and teens, that was a huge thing. And to stake it on a show like this was like pretty crazy. You know what I mean? So I really appreciate Nickelodeon during this era. It was really a really creative era in television that was, you know, sort of unparalleled, you know, in many ways, even to up to this day, you know, which is really, it means a lot. It's really special. If I'm, you guys got to go check some of this stuff out, but definitely, if, especially if you haven't seen it, watch Kablam. It ran from 96 to 2000, I believe. And there's lots to see. There's lots to see. Let me see how many seasons were. Four seasons, 48 episodes. But in those episodes, there's so many fun episodes of different things. I want to see for you, Kyle, if you have any closing thoughts on what, you know, if Stick Stickly was part of this thing. Yeah, you- Stick Stickly, maybe not. Maybe So Stick Stickly was live action, so it could have been in there. Could have been in there. But it was like, he ended up becoming like the host of like the Nickelodeon programming or whatever. Like he would be like the interstitial stuff. So but I think be- he came from somewhere. He might like, have- I think they pulled him from somewhere. But may- probably maybe not from this, but it was definitely that era. I'm going to look. You know, we had Mo Willems Offbeats was part of this thing. Angela Anaconda started on, as far as I know, started on um, on Kablam, Jet Cat, Race Rabbit, The Adventures of Patchhead, The Brothers Tiki, I don't remember, Fuzzball, The Louie and Louie Show, I remember, Little Freaks. I don't see anything about Anemia and Iodine. I don't remember that one either. That sounds like an interesting one. Created by Robert Skrull. What he was involved in? Robert Skull was involved in Rocco's. So that's interesting. So that's where I would ra- I would wrap it up. Really, Kablam is near and dear to my heart. Kablam makes me wish I was ten years younger, because I would I would have really enjoyed the shit out of that show. It reminds me of an animated Pete and Pete. Just really offbeat. Love Pete and Pete. You know, Kablam is what makes you want to be ten years younger. That's interesting. Kablam. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, that was a fun topic. I was glad that the audience voted on that and gave us an opportunity to talk about them. Although I wouldn't write off the opportunity for us to go back and investigate a couple of these in more depth. Absolutely. I think Doug would obviously be an, a good one to go and, and jump into. Doug could get a one-off. Yeah. SpongeBob. SpongeBob, definitely. It's going to get a one-off at some point. I yeah, whenever they guys. end it. We promise will, you guys that. We will consider. Yeah, for sure. And South Park, the same thing. It's sad that 
I had to remove that posthumously, as it were. It's really not the right word, but after you guys voted. And but we'll, we'll do it. Yeah, we'll do it. And we're going to replace it. So you're going to vote for two this month. So or the month that we're recording this anyway. OK, so Dagan, that's all we have. But let's end it with the two segments that we've been ending it with. I we'll love do, it. we'll end completely with a dad joke. But before we do, why don't you introduce the new segment that you are bringing to the table? Absolutely. Kyle. For this wave. Let me do that for you, my friend. You know what I learned, Kyle? Something really interesting about Nickelodeon that I learned that I always wondered about, you know, at some point. As we close this up, at some point, Nickelodeon decided, you know, they st- for the really old like me, you'll remember when Nickelodeon didn't have advertising. They didn't have on-air commercials. And at some point, Jerry Laybourne had to make a decision whether they were going to switch to that formula of having commercials during their programming block. Because Nickelodeon was always known for that. In between programming were interstitials and promotion and promotional stuff and sort of, you know, sort of a lot of promotional stuff for the network. And that's what was between shows, was between programming. But at some point, she had to make a decision on whether there was going to be advertising. And you know why she decided that she would do it? She said, and I this really speaks to me, I really like this, is that she said she always wanted to do the advertising because, first of all, she always wanted to control what was going to be on and what wasn't going to be aired. And she handpicked the commercials that could be on the air. And if she felt like it was inappropriate, she said no which was really cool, not only to specific commercials, but also to advertising agencies and companies in general, she would turn away, which was neat. But she always wanted to, the advertising to her brought in the money to make sure she could always make sure that Nickelode have the money to make sure Nickelodeon could be what she wanted it to be. And that really spoke to me. So she could always be liquid enough to have the power to have the creative control over what she wanted Nickelodeon to be. And that really spoke to me. Well, right, because they were, I, I assume, keeping themselves alive by the cable by, you know, model. Right. Where, you know, which is still happening today. Your cable provider pays ESPN $3 per subscriber. Then they'd pass on that cost to you and maybe charge you $3.50 to be a subscriber to ESPN. Sure, and stuff. Sure. So that's how Nickelodeon or Pinwheel was making money originally. Pinwheel, pinwheel spinning around. You ready? Let's for, do this. Oh, yeah, that's right. For the second uh, round, I was like, oh, we're going to continue to sing the song. All right, so like, let me oh, explain. I, I thought you were asking if we were ready to sing the song. I'm like, all right. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> Your game. So, all right. Oh, I like this next one. So, let me remind you guys what the game is before Colin puts his headphones on. It's called Do I Know You or Do I Know You? And I'm doing really bad at this game so far. But basically, I'm going to ask Colin a pop culture-related question, a nerddom-related question of some of some fashion. Colin is going to answer the question, but here's the here's the sticky wicket, you guys, and play along at home. I am going to try to guess what Colin is going to say. I'm going to let Colin put his noise-canceling headphones on, air quoting that. He's going to put his noise-canceling headphones on, and I am going to ask a que- I'm going to tell you guys what I'm going to ask Colin. I am going to tell you guys what I think the answer is going to be. Colin is then going to take his headphones off, and I am going to let Colin answer the question and see if I could guess it. In other words, how well do I know him? Colin, put your headphones on. All right. Cover those ears up. Guys, I am going to ask Colin today, and I'm trying. I'm zero for. I'm 0 for 4 so far, guys, so wish me luck on this. And I even cheated a little bit last time and still, and still messed it up. I'm going to ask Colin what his top, what his favorite Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy character ever is. His, fi- his favorite Final Fantasy character ever. I am going to guess either Cecil from Final Fantasy 4 or Kefka from Final Fantasy 6 slash 3. Okay, 
I am going to say, what is his fa fa favorite Final Fantasy character? He, I am going to guess either Cecil or Kefka. Okay, Colin, you may remove the headphones. Okay. Colin, today I'm going to ask you, the audience knows what I'm going to guess, what my guess is that you're going to say, I should say. Colin, what is, in your opinion, your favorite or the best Final Fantasy character ever? You can only pick one through all the games, through all the iterations. The best, your favorite, your most memorable Final Fantasy character. And I'm going to say something. Okay. I guess two. I'm cheating because I really want to get one right. I'm, I'm, it could be an antagonist too, right? It could be any character. Kefka. Yes! Yes! I got one right! <laughs> now, I guess two. I said Cecil and Kefka. Okay. Yeah, but Kefka a... was one of my... Okay. All right. I got one. There you go. You're on the board. I did it. You're batting 200 now. It's not, Look at my little legs. Not, I, even I know. You're not even floor. touching the ground. You're like a little hobbit. <laughs> a little halfling. You're like a little halfling. <laughs> well, good. Dave. You, you're on the board. I'm happy oh, for you. Oh, thank goodness. Thank the, my lucky stars. I felt really bad about this way the way this game was going. Colin, I have a dad joke for you. Please, hit me with it. Okay, which one am I going to ask today? There's still this controversial one. I'm still, I'm still not ready for this one yet. To all the people suffering out there from paranoia, just remember, you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> now, I got I like one more one. for you. Okay. Okay, let me see. Which one am I going to go? Okay. Dude, my neighbor just attacked me with milk, yogurt, and cheese. I know. How dare he? <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really bad. What was one of the disgusting ones our Uber driver said to us? Oh, what man. do you call a lesbian dinosaur? That was one yeah. of them. What was that one? Lick, I know what it was. I know a, the lick a, what, what is it? Lick a lot. Lick a lot. Lick a lot of puss. Lick a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. Our, so our Uber driver coming back tonight from In-N-Out Burger. He was unhinged. He must have known. I feel like he knew us or something. He told us a, a bevy. He he hit us with a flurry of dad jokes. Yeah, he was ready. He's like, you want to, you know, what you I was actually pissed off because they were good and I felt like he was showing me up. Yeah, he was kind of showing you up. There were some good ones bit. in there. You were laughing. I was. I liked them. They, there were some perverted ones in there. Can I ask you a question? Okay. Were you just being polite? No. Damn it. That means my dad jokes are really well, maybe bad. I was being like, like a little polite, but I thought that they were authentically funny. Damn it. Otherwise, I would have punched the back of his seat or something like that and shut up. He was talking a lot. He was. Yeah, it was. You know, I think I kind of bring it on to myself a little bit because I get into the car and I say, hey, I'm Colin. Thanks for coming. You know, and you're very it, genial. Yeah, I because I, I think it's weird. Like I've, I've been with and I've seen people just get in Uber cars. And like, you know, they have their headphones on and shit. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so rude. It's a little it's just weird. You know, it's it's not a cab. Yeah, it's like a little the, the the mores are a little different. I would feel bad doing that in a cab. Yeah, I would too. At least acknowledge you have to at least acknowledge each other first, and then you can put your headphones on or something. But did I ever tell you the story about my kid's first cab ride in New York? The guy was the rudest son of a bitch. I actually, you guys know me a little bit. I actually wanted to full on fight this guy. I was ready to drag that. He was the rudest sob. Like I, I, my wife and two kids. I think we were seeing cats that that day that night so we it was like an event you know my kids were in town It was their first broadway show we had really good seats going out to dinner it wasn't their first time in new york but it was their first time gonna be taking a cab and they were excited so we were somewhere we were like downtown by the tree or something we had to get up to the theater somewhere so it wasn't that far of a cab ride i was trying you know they're sitting in the all three of them are sitting in the back i had to sit in the front so i'm trying to make conversation with the guy and the guy's being so rude to me He's being like the rudest son of a bitch. He's, he was basically telling, like, it without, like, he was like one step away from telling me to shut the fuck up. 
Like that's how rude it was getting. And Helene, I was looking at Helene out the corner of my eye and she's looking at me like, oh shit, like he's getting pissed off. Like, let's just get the hell out of the cab. I actually had to stop. I actually had to tell him to stop. We were like halfway there. I was like, let it, you're, the next red light, let me out of this cab. Like it was like insane. I felt so bad for the kids because they, their first cab ride was like this obnoxious son of a bitch. It's New York. You know? And that's why I don't really feel that bad that they're getting replaced by Uber. No, I don't feel... Dude, I've said that in that the past. That one dude, though. is That's not right to feel that way. No, but I, I will say New York cabs are pretty good generally just in getting you where you need to go. Yeah. The San Francisco cabs were bad, like really bad. And that's... Watching Uber destroy them was like destroy them. They took them out. Just took... Yeah, completely took them out. Like it was... It just happened. Yeah. I took great pleasure in it personally. Because... <laughs> why? Because fuck these people. They have been... The... the, the you know, I, I go, of course, it's a generalization. Of course, you had nice cab drivers, but I'm telling you, it's I repeatedly it was a common thing in San Francisco. Anyone that has lived in San Francisco yeah, at that yeah. time will tell you. Yeah, you wanted to get a You wanted to get a cab anywhere in the sunset or the Richmond. You wanted to get a cab and pay credit. You wanted to get a cab and do and leave the city. You wanted to get a cab and go to the airport. The, the, nothing ever. Really? It was always a problem. I got out of, dude, I got into fights with so many cab drivers. In, in San Francisco. In San Francisco over all sorts of shit. When really? Uber came in, yeah, because they didn't want to bring into the sunset because they couldn't get a return fare. They didn't want to take credit cards because they had to pay a fee on it. They didn't right. want, and there was no competition, so they could do whatever they wanted. And then Uber came in and fucking gave them a black eye and punched them the fuck out and they're gone. So they were city cabs. It's not private cabs. No, it was, it was multiple private cab companies that had to have medallions. Okay. So it's similar to New York, actually. Okay. And no, I remember from 2013 to 2014, so that was a long time ago, cab fares in San Francisco dropped to 90%, 90% year over year, really? 90%. Holy cow. That's not only the reaction of a new market, that's the reaction of a market that hates the old market. Is uh, Uber a San Francisco, a NorCal based company? San Francisco, yeah. Yeah, okay. So like to me, I always looked at that and I'm like, listen, that's not only adopting a new technology, that's like anger in the market. Being like, no, we're ready to put you the fuck out. Yeah. Like I will, I dead up wouldn't get into a cab in San Francisco after Uber wow. came out. I, don't, I, I could, I didn't give a fuck. I'm like, no way. I, I'm going to, you guys have, it wasn't one person. It wasn't two people. It sure. was 10. It was 15 cab drivers wow, over the time. Dude, that's insane. You know, so I'm like, That's speaking bye. with your wallet. Yep. I mean, that's just the way it is. If the customer service isn't there, I mean, that's just the way, that's, that's how things evolve. It's called capitalism, man. It's called I, survival of the fittest. I got into an argument with a cab driver once in Boston. It wasn't really an argument. It was like a heated conversation yeah. on the way to PAX. Tim Geddes was in the car with okay. me. And I remember he was getting really uncomfortable because he knew where it was going. But like this guy, this guy when I were at the time, Uber was in trouble in Boston. This was like year, four or five years ago. And they were like getting, you know, kind of kicked out of the city, but they're back now. And I was talking to the cab driver and he was basically saying like, well, Uber makes it impossible for us to compete. And I'm like, it's not a valid reason why they shouldn't exist. And right. he was like, well, I paid, you know, $500,000 for my medallion and all that. And I'm like, that was your choice. Yeah. To do that. Yeah. And he's like, well, my medallion is worthless now. And I'm like, that the market functions like this yeah i'm sorry that you made that choice that's awful what would be really shitty if that was like the um like that's the guy who wanted to like be super polite and super professional right and you know that was the guy who suffered because of everybody else right exactly that sucks and the cat that and, pisses me off and then actually. the cab driver started making like you know flat you know flagging apps like five years later it's like guys it's done it's over. oh wow you know okay. what i mean it's over right so eight dollars short by a lot, actually. I mean, cab, the cab industry is the, it got turned inside out because yeah, by Uber. And by they're not going to be the last industry Uber turns inside out. Not only Uber, right? I mean, is anybody else existing in the Bay Area because Uber's based there? Like, is Lyft, Lyft a thing? I think Lyft is also based in San oh, Francisco. They're th oh, they are? Yeah. And okay. they just went they went public, actually. So Lyft did? Yeah. I'm waiting for the IPO from Uber, which should be in a few months by the time we're recording They this. still haven't. 
No. Wow. They they're they like they waiting for? they're so in the hole, dude. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have to start paying their people back. I mean, they're losing like a billion dollars a quarter. Why? Because they can't. They're they're not profitable because oh. they they're paying. You know, once they remove, we're getting way off topic. But once they remove that's the human, right. that's com- interesting. Once they remove the human component, I mean, that's a sad thing to say. But once they remove the human component from their Ubers, and once they get in the long distance tr- automatic trucking and stuff like that, which they're going to be a leader in, yeah, they're going to start making turning tons of profit. Yeah, yeah. And I want to be in bad you, on you, that. You I'm all over that stock when it come, when when they go to the IPO. I'm all over it, like 100. Smart. Yeah. I think. I think so too. I think that's going to be a blue chip tech stock right. for decades. It sounds like it. So we'll see how it all goes. But Dagan, appreciate you. Thank appreciate you. Appreciate your dad jokes, and of course, we appreciate your insight into animation. Oh, man. Well, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you. I appreciate you guys for listening. Thank you so much. I hope all you guys are doing good out there. I forgot to say that at the beginning of the show. I hope all you guys are doing so good out fuck there. Him. Thank you for listening. Fuck Colin says, fuck you. <laughs> he could say that because you guys love him so much already. No, you see, they love you. See, I'm getting a little resentful because they love you more than they love me. It's <laughs> not true. That's not going to fly. That's not true. Me. That's impossible. All right. Good cut. Let's get on to the next scene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like what I always love shit like that where I'm like, that's. Mark it, Hamill must be like, no, 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 no. That was, let me do more. And they were like, no, that's, no, that's that was fine. fine. That sounds great. Let's just move on. We're running, we're running out of time here. <laughs> Dagan, we'll see you next time. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate everyone out there for you guys listening. We appreciate you. And as Dagan says, we really do hope you're doing well. Even though I said fuck you, I didn't really mean it. And guys, I just want to let you know Mark Hamill liked my tweet today. So that was big. That was a big moment. It was yesterday. So, it was last night, actually. Oh, yeah, it was yesterday. You're I, so I just bragged You're about so it today on Instagram. That you, uh, that's big. That's big time. I think that means we're best friends. That's I'm big not, time. I mean, we're good friends at least. Well, because you said something to me like, "Oh, well, it doesn't you know?" For me, it's a big deal, and I'm like, "What? Mark Hamill's liking my tweets? No one fucking likes my tweets." <laughs> <laughs> Who's liking my tweets? That is a, like Mark Hamill. I don't think so. Can you imagine having? Well, you you can't imagine this because you do have this power. Like, you could make someone's day by liking something they said. That's unbelievable. To I've me. never liked anything on on Twitter ever. You never heart the thing. Nope, never. You really hate doing that. Because there's a reason. It's because everyone uses everything against everyone on Twitter, right? Right. I would rather you use what I say against me than me liking something someone said, right? Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like someone's just going to come in one day and be like, he liked this tweet. Yeah, but if someone says, Kyle, you know, great job on the on sacred symbols today. Keep up the great work. Right, but but that I don't want to. So I, there's always a method to my madness. Please. This is something everyone learns. I know, over time. I know you have an answer. There's for it, always then. a method. The reason I don't want to do that is because then I don't want to be like the guy who just likes tweets that people comp- or people complimenting me. So then you look at all my likes and it's just like you're great, you're awesome, thanks so much, you changed my life. <laughs> Can't you just see it as a thank you though? Yeah, but that's the thing is that I try. I haven't been great about it the last month or so, but yeah. you, as you've probably seen on Twitter, and I think as the audience knows if they use Twitter. There are times like, you know, once or twice a week where I just go in and I literally open a hundred new windows, literally. Oh, do you really? That's how you do it? Like, I'll go through everything people have said to me over oh, the last week. you do it week. on the PC? Yeah, I do it on PC and I just open like a bunch of new windows. So it's at, like all these tweets I want to answer. Then I go through. And if you look at the timestamps, they're like rapid Holy shit. answers and I'll answer 50 people at a time. That's a pretty cool way to do it, though. So I feel like that's a nicer way to do it. But I'm not great about interact, like, you know, bouncing back on Twitter a lot. Yeah. And I need to be better about that. But I feel like the passivity of liking something is I don't want to say it's lazy because I, no, I don't no, know I that I feel that way. But it's just I understand what you're saying. I understand your view on it. You know, but yeah, generally speaking, I just don't don't want to like the non-controversial tweets, which are going to be like, you're great. Right. But then right, I right. want to like what people say if they say something insightful. But then someone's going to be like, oh, you said this. So you it's missed like my thing. So, yeah, you didn't like my thing. Right. It's just so it's just better off that we just you know what? Let's just not. 
do anything. All right. Right? You know what I mean? I like your guys' stuff. Yeah, Dagan likes Dagan <laughs> likes all sorts of tweets. Dagan will like you, you say tweet tweet anything at Dagan, he's gonna like it. I'm not gonna like tweet that. a dick pic at Dagan, he's gonna love it. Oh dude. You know how many dick pics I'm gonna get now? Dude, no one you're not gonna get any dick pic. You want no one is gonna take a picture of their dick and send it to you, but someone's gonna send you a picture of a dick. Oh my god. I remember when iPhone first came out when I was living in San Francisco when I first worked at IGN and it was really popular to take everyone's phones and put dick pics as their background. That was like what everyone was doing to each other's phones. Oh my God. Like people would put their phones on the table at, at a party or whatever and everyone would go on and like go on the internet and quickly like save a dick pic Dude, as their background. Dude, that is amazing. What? I remember, yeah, I remember doing that, you know. How has never, never done that to me? I'm best friends with somebody you think would do that to me a million times. Well, now we're code protected and stuff, so it's. Well, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can't are. Your, kid, your kids use your phone, which they I can't imagine codes. that. Like, they know my codes. Someone someone was asking, I tweeted out a picture of a browser, a Chrome browser on my phone, and or no, Safari, and someone was like, oh, why are you an incognito? And I'm like, because I don't want fucking weirdos looking at what I'm searching. <laughs> I don't need you guys snooping around my shit. Someone steals my phone and you know all the shit I look at? Right. You don't want to know, first of all. All right. And second of all. Do we? No. Well, Maybe. you might. You might want to Maybe some people might. But uh, you're not. You freaks. I look at scat porn. So we'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much for your love, your kindness, and your support. Goodbye. Bye, guys. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Santa Monica, California and the Philadelphia suburbs of Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. Any snail mail can be sent to our P.O. Box, P.O. Box 1233, Santa Monica, California, 90406. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Carlos Algaret, C.J. Anderson, Morgan Ashley, Taylor Barkley, Sean Battershaw, Martin Beck, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, Mark Boggio, Eli Bosford, Barrett Boswell, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Tom Cargill, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Ryan Caulfield, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Gio Corsi, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Colin Davenport, Daniel Delanikos, Mitchell Durkash, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Martha Emery, Joe Finn. Nelly, Eric Finkenbeiner, Candler Four, Photios Frangos, Michael Gallier, Chris Galvin, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem El Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Azan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, John Jameson, Joshua Jonathan, Greg Julius, Anton K, Jeremy Key, Antti Kinnanen, James Kinsel III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Jackson Lastiqua, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Elijah Lopez, Colin Love, Josh M, Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Michael Martinez, Sean Mason, Zachariah McAdoo, John McCarthy, Joe McPartland, Dennis Meinchin, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Middling, Albert Miranda, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Ryan Murdoch, Brian Nietzsche, Adam Nitsch, Donnie Nolan, George Anthony Nunez, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, David Parkhurst, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, Nicholas Perfect, James Perrone, Jason Pettit, Jeff Pollard, Louis Powell, Lawrence F. Prokop, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Tony D. Riemenschneider, 
Austin Riley, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Schultz, Michael Shanholtz, Brandon Sharkey, Toby Schutman, Glendon Cole Simper, Joshua Smallwood, Andrew Smith, Daniel Strycharsk, John Tambanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Joseph Thayer, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Jacob Turnbaugh, Phil Van Ralt, Raymond Vargas, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayant, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Toothless Gibbon, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Homeworld Hub, Throw7, Infinite, Mad Mock Media, Fabian, Mubarak, Richter86, Hugo's Desk, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Donk2015, and Gavin.